This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Happy Tuesday to you. Hope you're having a wonderful day as you, you know, get back at it, knocking it down. It ain't easy. It really, it's life I'm finding out. It seems to be kind of like Groundhog Day if you're not careful. You just wake up, do it again, and then, oh, did I scare people? Really? Yeah. I don't, I think you surprised people there. No, I, it's, you just do it again. Do it again. My kid asked me do the other again. day, he goes, what did you and mom do before I was born? And I, well, we went to work. And we came home, and we <laughs> ate dinner, and we went to bed. Kind of the same thing we do now, except with kids. And he went, Isn't that's it boring. Great? He said, that's boring. And I went, yeah, well, boring. you know. But yeah, you're right. You get into kind of a rut, and you just kind of do the same and, thing. And even, it could even be a good rut, but it's just it's just a rut. I mean, yeah. it's good. It's positive. It's life. So we, our goal is to help you make it even a better life if we can. Today, by the way, we got a, a very, I think, interesting interview coming up about Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, journalists. We've had two, three, probably four, five, I don't even know how many, like half a dozen probably on the show over the last five years. Right. Who'd you have? Huh? Who'd you have? I don't remember their names. Oh. They're not like rock stars. They just, they win this award because but it's of one of the biggest awards you can win as a journalist. And what's the key to winning it? Is it just being a really tenacious journalist that gets all the facts right? Is it just your objectivity? Well, our guest today is going to talk about the fact that it's probably more about getting an emotional story told. Which conflicts with objective yeah. journalism. If you put emotion into it, you're putting more of you and that's not what you're supposed to it do. It seems like you shouldn't, you shouldn't necessarily bring all that emotion in. You're supposed to stay objective. I think they test you on how to pronounce that word too. Yeah. Is it Pulitzer or Pulitzer? Hmm. So if you were to say Pulitzer – they might say, ooh, maybe next year. Didn't you mean Pulitzer? So I think the point is we've got to decide, and our expert coming up will talk about it, what's journalism? Is journalism about objectivity? Which, by the way, they're very objective in their stories, and they tell them with such an emotional flair that people connect to them. That's what makes the story really sing. And, by the way, we're emotional beings, so we probably would be attracted to such a thing. Journalism is also a degree I didn't really do much with. Really? Yeah. Well, look at you now. You're, you're, in, a pseudo, you're in a pseudo-journalistic <laughs> role. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're on the radio every day. People are like, so you're in journalism. I'm like, ah. Well, uh. I read things from other people who I would call journalists. Yeah. I'm more of a – We're more in the – we're holding down the fake news end kind of, of journalism. pass the word along sort of a mm-hmm. – We dabble in words. Yeah. I, that's why I'm, I get frustrated with Trump because he makes fake news sound bad. Yeah. Like, come on, man. When for us, it's just a living. <laughs> and I don't go near a journal. It's been months that's since true. I've written in a journal. Yeah, you need to journal more. Not to Not to – get down on you but yeah so we'll talk pulitzer prize winning stories and uh, the emotion of journalism that needs to be put in every story plus um of course uh, some headlines apparently the health care act uh isn't going to make it to vote we're not we're not getting there 
I know. More senators are bailing out, including Senator Lee from Utah. Guy from Kansas. Guy from Kansas. They're just it's just not baked quite right yet. No. You didn't put enough baking soda or whatever. I don't know. I haven't I don't bake. Yeah. Well, Maybe was... they used powdered milk instead of flour like ah, I did once. Did you? How'd that turn out? The cookies didn't taste bad. My dad actually really liked them, but they would stick to the roof of your mouth. <laughs> but dad will eat anything. <laughs> so We'll, we'll be uh, we'll get, get into some of the politics. Plus, I've got we got to talk about this laser. Did you hear about the Navy's new laser? Yeah, I saw it in action. I believe. Yeah, didn't isn't that cool? Yeah, we'll talk about that. That by the way, if you are a drone, you ought to be shaking in your drone boots. Right. I have a story about lasers coming up. Oh, really? Yeah. A hair laser removal? No. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Okay. Aliens. Oh, really? Yeah. Really. Mm-hmm. Aliens and lasers. Absolutely. So all of that straight ahead. It's going to be huge. Uh, but first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the country? Thousands of people struggling to pay off their private student loan debt may get reprieve. At least $5 billion in debt is missing crucial paperwork to enforce payments. Oh, please be me. Please be me. Creditors seeking to collect on past debts have reportedly hit a roadblock when trying to seek payment through the courts with insufficient ownership records and flawed documentation, the New York Times reports. The National Collegiate Student Loan Trust, one of the biggest owners of private student loan debt, has reportedly been unable to present legal paperwork showing it owns more than $5 billion in loan debt. The result is that many debts simply get wiped out in court. Samantha Watson, a 33-year-old mother of three, was taken to court over 31000 in student loans. But the judge erased her debt after finding that the National Collegiate failed to establish the chain of title on the loans. Several other court cases in Texas, New Hampshire, and Ohio have also been tossed due to missing or flawed paperwork. Toss them out. Toss them out. Can you imagine that? Man, I you hope. You got $31,000 in debt, and the court, the, the court just goes, oh, well, no, not anymore. Yeah, you got to track it. It's got to be connected. It's to like a renew lease on life. You know, like, <laughs> yes. I'm free. On Monday, Netflix reported that it made $2.7 billion in revenue for the second quarter of 2017 and turned a tidy profit reporting $66 million in income, up about 50% from the same period last year. Usually, they don't make any money. Right. Usually, they burn it all because they're just trying to grow. Yeah. And so, you know, turning a profit's kind of an interesting uh, turn of events for Thank them. goodness, because we need a season four of Fuller House. The most important number, Ugh. it may be coming. The most important <laughs> number for investors, of course, was growth. Uh, Netflix beat expectation. It added 5.2 million customers in, the, in total during the second quarter versus the forecast of three million. So, you know, they, they beat their own projections. 1.1 million of these new customers came from the U.S., 4 million from overseas. Oh, wow. They're growing big outside the United States. Uh, they premiered 14 new seasons of global Netflix original series. Now, those frustrate me because they look really interesting, yeah. and then it's all in French. Oh, en français. And I'm so- not reading my TV. Some of these countries get shows on Netflix before we do, too. Right. They have different regional What a rip-off. They have 13 original comedy specials, six original documentaries, two original documentary series, nine original feature films, and seven seasons of original series for kids. Oh, boy. They have one that's uh, Puss in Boots from the Shrek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of interactive. That so, sword fighting cat. Yeah, he'll like pop up and say, "What should I do now?" And then your kid on, on my kid on his iPad will like pick oh, which oh. version of the story. It's a choose your own av- How adventure cool. approach. That's great. And he loves it. He sits there. I want to play that one again. You know, so he That's sees cool. it as a game, not as a show. Yeah. Now they want to take aim at the film business. The company announced that this year they will release forty features that range from big budget popcorn films to grassroots independent cinema. 
Mm. All on that, all on the service itself. See, these these are more two and a half hour movies rather than Holy a series. Holy cow! Netflix right? is you know stretching its borders. They expect to burn through two billion and two point five billion, two to two point five billion in cash this year, and they don't expect to generate any cash for many years to come. No okay, profit. So, They're yeah. just going to burn through money. Yeah, but you, you don't need to make money yet. You know what that means? What? They're going to raise the price on Netflix. Oh, they have to generate funds, and that comes no. out of you. So money goes up. Facebook news. We all love Facebook what? news. Uh, they were spotted testing a new type of news feed earlier this year, one that's designed to help you discover content across the social network beyond posts from your friends and pages that you already follow. Hmm. During tests, the feed was available through the Facebook app underneath uh, whatever. Some Something uh, that seemed to confuse users who didn't understand the feed's purpose. So people would stumble across it and be confused as hey, to what all this, this is. Feed? Yeah. Because it's not grandma's cat. It's like actual information you could use. Now the alternative feed is showing up for users under Facebook's More menu, where it is simply named Explore Feed. Hmm. So if you want to find stuff that you're not following... You just go... Hmm. Okay. Hey, by the way... That's cool. Netflix got 91 Emmy nominations. That's it. 91. Yeah, they led the way. That's amazing. I mean, especially for a company that's not making any money. Right. They're doing great. Well, they made a couple million this last quarter, but they're going to, you know buy paper clips and be done with it. And finally, for decades, we have been listening to the skies using radio telescopes, hoping to catch a faint chatter of alien signals. <gasps> yes. But we've heard nothing. And one of the reasons might be that we're listening all wrong. The scientists behind the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, SETI. Yeah. That's the project, the SETI project. Now aiming to look for the telltale flashes of aliens communicating with lasers. It's a different approach to previous laser experiments, which assumed that E.T. would constantly be beaming signals towards us. The new laser SETI detector, currently seeking funding via Indiegogo, which is always the place you want to... Yeah, that's where you go get your funding. Get your alien detection Mm -hmm. equipment funded. Uh, They could use these flashes. The project page says, now SETI experiments, whether listening for a radio transmitter or searching for high-powered laser, have assumed that E.T. is on the air all the time. So that whatever the instrument is pointed at, the signal will be there. Laser SETI is the first experiment to circumvent this assumption. Ooh. Laser SETI could find very short ping from anywhere in the sky. Wow. Indeed, it could detect a laser flash as short as a millisecond or less, and one that might not repeat for days, weeks, or even longer, or ever. Wow. It's in essence, a sophisticated heat beam, which we called a laser. A laser. <laughs> so instead of a consistent, like, Solid yeah. beam, it right. just be flashes they're looking for. This is scary. But of course, they need Indiegogo to make this happen. Well, yeah. I mean, you need money. So that's where I would go. Right. Indiegogo, put up your off, put up your idea, then make billions. So then go identify where the space aliens are. We've talked are. about crowdfunding healthcare. Yeah. That was last week. And then today, crowdfunding alien detection systems. Yeah. I once knew an Indiegogo dancer. Well, that, I think that's different. Oh, okay. Yeah. We, well, we already, we talk to Pluto regularly. Right. So we know there's alien life right. out there. Sure. He's getting bigger, too. Yeah, that guy, that Pluto's not that dwarf planet anymore. He's still a dwarf planet, but he's a, his, his waistband's getting bigger. He's trying to gain weight for the big weigh-in. Because they weigh him in, you know, frequently. I don't to think see if that's going to still... make him a real planet, though, is the problem. Hmm. Mm. Well, at least maybe he'll get to fight, you know, Mars. 
That'd be fun, huh? Did you hear about this robot? You guys, do you guys think we should have robots securing our buildings? Depends. See, at BYU Broadcasting, we have an an incredible force of officers that secure our building, but they're humans, so they don't get right. in trouble. They don't. Mm. This apparently they a ro- do check locked doors constantly. Though. They do. In fact, I swear yep. one was locked in a room, but I didn't want to let him out. Well, because, yep, it's still locked. Okay, moving yeah. on. So, uh, in a building um, in Washington D.C., they had a three hundred pound android that was supposed to like constantly be moving around the building for security and protection and stuff. Hmm. Well, apparently it fell into a fountain. Oh. It was just, it texting and not paying attention to where yeah. it was going? <laughs> it sounds it was, like it. Yeah. yeah it, was, it was texting its girlfriend. Dripped uh, over its cord. It's called the K5 machine, um, which a silicon startup, Nightscope, developed, was reportedly patrolling in Washington Harbor Complex in Georgetown when it fell down steps and landed on its side in the water. Ooh. <laughs> Done. And now so, there's just a cute little picture of this droid kind of floating on its side so in the middle of the even the basic lake. technology that you can find in a Roomba. Yeah. He can't do that right. It's a Roomba and a garbage can. It's sad. It looks like R2-D2 without all the blue. And then it's got like – you can tell the other security forces or at least maintenance ba- bailing it out of the thing. So it looks like the nose cone of a rocket. Actually, yeah. I think that's the funeral. Yeah. They're burying at sea. A Viking over. funeral. Nice. Uh, this one uh, person on Twitter wrote, our D.C. office building got a security robot and it drowned itself. We were promised flying cars, but instead we got suicidal robots. Maybe it's just a lousy job and he decided he was done with it. Yeah. That's probably <laughs> Not it. to get too dark. Oh, that is dark. Well, I mean, a better a robot than yeah. – I mean, you don't want your real security guards falling into, you know – Probably wouldn't. Well, not unless they were saving a child or something. Mm -hmm. Crazy. Uh, Maybe a better story for technology would be the Navy's new uh, creation of a laser. uh, What do we weapon? Basically, like a cannon of some kind. Yeah, but I don't know. And it, but it can now bring down drones. So a drone flies near a ship. They pull out this laser cannon. You can't see anything. It doesn't look like it's doing anything. And the next thing you know, the drone will explode. This sounds eerily mm. close to a number of James Bond films. It's exactly like a James Except Bond Except they'd film. superimpose some sort of red line to show the laser. This is, no, that was real. You, you can't see anything. And the neat thing they say about it is, it's the, it's, as far as uh, technology goes, you can actually make it destroy anything by just aiming it at it and... It will only destroy that. So if a motorboat's coming at you, mm. they can aim it at the engine of the boat, and it'll basically melt the engine of the boat. What about popcorn? If you want to do your popcorn, mm. you can set it on a light popcorn setting nice. so you don't burn the popcorn. Do you think they just have a button like your microwave uh-huh. just says popcorn? Yeah. Nice. I think it just says one minute, <laughs> two minutes. <laughs> Didn't you used to do this with your toys or ants, though, it's in a exactly magnifying right. glass? It's that. In fact, they said it's just like it has basically the same technology as a laser pointer, but at a bigger scale. Oh wow! Except laser pointers are meant to annoy. Well, but they also apparently can burn corneas. Really? Hmm. That's why it's kind of dangerous to point them at your eyeball. You didn't know that? Who said that? Oh, he can't even hear because of the other issue. Oh wow! Yeah, don't look into don't look at your laser pointer. I walked in today and you were like playing, "Hey, I got a laser in my eye game." And you then stop that. 
And then I let you trouble. play with it, and I couldn't. For some reason, I was kind of mesmerized, and I was yeah, chasing it up the walls. And <laughs> here, kitty, kitty. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. The lay, the, the Navy's on it. So if you have uh, a drone that you've been playing with, just don't play anywhere near near a Navy yard because they'll shoot it out of the air, and you won't even know why. It'll just come back, kind of melted, in ten pieces. Ah, the Navy. They're on it in the Navy. Okay, that's not sing. Uh, Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the key to Pulitzer Prize winning journalism. What is it really? Would you believe it's emotional writing? Hmm. Is emotional writing what journalists do? Stick with us. Interesting insight up next. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, we are getting our next guest on the line, and as, as we are doing that, we were talking about Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. Again, I can't remember the exact number, but over like the last five or six years of the show, probably at least five Pulitzer Prize winners did, on the show. Did you speak to Roger Ebert before he passed? No. Was he a Pulitzer Prize winner? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But it's it's a really crazy question because you wrote we, that great movie review on uh, that Polly Shore movie. How, how did you, <laughs> was it emotional? Did he, did he use emotional writing <laughs> to get it to make it happen? It's it's weird because we're now questioning journalism. President Trump more than ever before is questioning the ethics of journalism. You know, citing sources that are unnamed, um, citing leaks that have come out of the White House or other places. And so journalism's taking a beating, it seems like. And as part of the beating, it honestly feels like uh, maybe we don't need journalists as much as we used to. <gasps> I know. Because there's a weird difference that happens between, I guess, how we would classify a New York Times journalist and maybe a TMZ journalist. Clearly. But maybe TMZ wouldn't call themselves journalists, but they might. So is are, are TMZ reporters journalists? Maybe they're gossip journalists. But I think many journalists would say don't use the J word. Don't call yourself a journalist because you haven't been trained in the ethics and the morals and the codes of journalism. You just, you know, hide behind palm trees in L.A., you take pictures of Kardashians coming out of bars. But then there are journalists yeah. who break the rules themselves. Oh, yeah. Happens all the time. Happens all the time. And so Trump has been basically calling out people as fake journalists, fake news, fake, 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 fake. And that now all of a sudden a lot of the journalists are saying, hey, quit calling it fake. Like, hey. Well, when you throw it out there about 100 times, one of them's going to stick well, and then, <laughs> then there's a mistake with some CNN journalists that caused some problems because they were citing sources and stories that weren't necessarily legit. Then all of a sudden, everybody piles on and says, see, journalism's fake. We would never do that on this show, by no. the way. No, we wouldn't. When we, when we make fake news up, we, everyone knows it's fake. Gosh, I hope. <laughs> One of the crazy things, though, I guess, that we got to figure out in, in the – in journalism is what is journalism today? Is anybody with a web show or a podcast now considered journalism? Do you remember um, the Drudge Report? Matt Drudge 
became the biggest newsmaker back in the in Clinton's day by bringing out the Monica Lewinsky story. And he wasn't ABC, NBC, CBS. He wasn't CNN. And he brought the White House, uh, you know, shined a huge light on the White House in a way they just flat out didn't want it to happen. Well, I know that a lot of people in the voiceover world, for instance, say that once you get your first paid gig, or even if you're just a, a standard actor and you get your first paid gig, you're now a professional. That's right. You know? Yeah. Could well, the same thing be said about journalism, though? Once like you, you, you break a story, now you're a professional. But then, you know, all of the the uh, rags, what do they call them, the, all of the um, crazy, extreme... Mudslingers? Yeah, what do they call them? The ones at the grocery store. I don't even know the names anymore because... Tabloids. All the tabloids are all of a sudden... Potential journalists, right? No, I, mean, I wouldn't call them journalists. <laughs> exactly. So here's that's the that's the problem we run into, and then we then take it to the other side. Pulitzer Prize winning journalists, according uh, to the guest, we're we're getting on the phone. Karen Wall Jorgensen, who's done some research on the subject, found out that the majority of the people that are winning the Pulitzer Prize, they're not just you know, objectively stating fact, they're actually writing their stories on very emotional topics. Then they're teaching and stating the facts. So it's the opioid, opioid epidemic, and so they'll go tell one story of a family stricken by uh, opioids and drug addiction, and they tell it in such a moving way with all of the facts intertwined that it becomes something you want to read, and it's objective. But is it objective if you're invoking so much emotion? Hmm. And some of that emotion, by the way, wouldn't necessarily be – it would be the emotion created by the journalist. So are you talking manipulation? I think what it is is it's kind of the mix, the perfect mix maybe of entertainment and journalism. OK. So you wouldn't call it manipulation. Then. No. But it is still the uh, the number one prize for journalism is to be a Pulitzer Prize winner. And if you win the Pulitzer, you probably have to have some ability to entertain and so, emotional writing is probably part of that. So maybe you're only a journalist if you win the Pulitzer. You're, yeah. Well, maybe we should be calling these people <laughs> entertainment journalists, like infotainment. Infotainment, yeah. yeah. Hmm. But then again, that's not as exciting as journalism. And remember, journalism is the fourth estate, right? Is that what we call it? The fourth branch of government are the journalists that are protecting us. So if you're going to protect our democracy, do you need to do it with a lot of emotional writing or just the facts, ma'am? Just the facts. See, this well, is you do want readers. You do want readers. You need readers. And this is the dilemma I think journalism faces because now you have President Trump calling them all fake news. Uh, then you have the problem with the fact that very few people are reading or less people, fewer people are reading than used to read the newspaper. So now you got to keep subscription rates up. And how do you do that? But make it interesting. But if you make it too interesting, then it becomes fake news if you're making stuff up. So it's a crazy battle that they're facing. And uh, there is probably no right way to do this. How do you handle it? And then you is we saw what happened with Fox News. They've led the ratings forever. And now one by one, all of their show hosts have been eliminated and fired and moved on and they've all quit and yet their ratings were booming. And what happens when they move to another station? 
Did somebody shine a spotlight on them and expose them or something? Yeah, kind of. And there was Mm. a lot of controversy, right? So – it's a it's a wild wild dance that they're doing in the in the world of journalism. As a person that studied journalism and not a real journalist, let's be real, but uh, as a person that studied it, it's I think it's critical. We have to have somebody willing to push back on uh, the White House, but we probably ought to make sure we're doing it with the highest standards and ethical standards. And I honestly think if people writing a story make it more engaging and emotional while still telling the facts and the truth, I think it's great. Because then more people will get involved in reading the news. Do you think that they are absolutely necessary, though, when we have a system in place of checks and balances with the other two branches of government? Yeah. We, yeah. Because they're all in cahoots. Not to be negative. But yeah, they're all in cahoots. You know what I mean? Nothing gets done. <laughs> Nothing gets done in Congress. So who do you believe? If in, Then it all just depends, I guess, on your persuasion. If you tend to f- follow Democrats, you'll believe the Democrats. If you believe the Republicans, you believe the Republicans. But we need somebody out there that's actually getting us some of the facts. But I think we also need to be incredibly careful of the sourcing of facts because that's too easy to say unknown sources or un, uh, or what was it? Uh, the term that they, they seem to love – um, would be like uh, unnamed sources. But the problem is those unnamed sources out of the White House could be the president sending his message out or could be somebody that hates the president that's in his cabinet or whatever that's trying to just spread Could you just say chaos. it's been said – One person once said this. Let's take a break. Uh, When we come back, we'll continue the journey about uh, journalism and also Pulitzer Prize winning stories. Emotionality. Is that the key to a winning a Pulitzer Prize? Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. You know, how do you win journalism's greatest award, the Pulitzer Prize? Is it great reporting skills? Is it just the facts, ma'am? Or is it investigative journalism? Well, maybe it is representing a very important uh, social issue that's important to the community. Well, here to help us understand journalism a little bit more and what really goes behind some of the best writing is Professor Karen Vall Jorgensen. She's a research uh, director of research development and environment at uh, School of Journalism at Cardiff University in the UK. And today she's going to help us understand that perhaps the big key to uh, winning a Pulitzer Prize may be an emotional storytelling um, ability of the journalist. We appreciate you being here with us. Thank you, uh, Professor Karen Vall Jorgensen. Well, thank you for having me. This is, I think, a fascinating undertaking. You went and reviewed past uh, Pulitzer uh, Prize-winning journalist writings. And what did you come up with? What did you find is the key? What separates a Pulitzer Prize winner from everybody else? Well, um, two things uh, primarily. First of all, Pulitzer Prize-winning stories are based on painstaking journalistic work. So the the journalists who win these prizes often work together in teams to 
do very in-depth investigative research, uh, and that is something that requires a lot of resources. So really, it's a team. A lot of it's a team effort and a lot of resources to be able to get all of the research done that's necessary. Well, that's right, and that's why it's traditionally been these very uh, sort of... um, Uh, important national news organizations like the New York Times and the Washington Post that that have scooped up the prices. Although in in recent years, we've seen more and more sort of collaborative projects going on with new actors like ProPublica, for instance. Mm. Second very important element that I discovered through my research is that actually this kind of you know, facts-based, painstaking research is not enough necessarily to win a Pulitzer Prize. What you also need is this very strong ingredient of emotional storytelling. Hmm. And that really is, is that what engages readers to read? Well, it, it seems to be the case that in order to make these very abstract big stories that come alive, we need to be able to anchor them in the experience of actual individuals who are, who are living through these events. Yeah. Does, I mean, I, and I guess that's, that's kind of, um, to some, they might question, well, I thought it was kind of an either-or of the painstaking fact-based research, or uh, which seems much more objective, or the emotional kind of writing side, which might seem a little more subjective. Um, do you see it as a problem of subjectivity if we bring in too much emotional writing? It's important to recognize, and, and this is what my research has shown, that objective reporting is not necessarily mutually exclusive with actually telling emotional stories. So um, the sociologist Gay Tuckman wrote uh, a very famous piece back in the 1970s where she talked about uh, what she called the strategic ritual of objectivity in journalism. And she suggested that because objectivity is so important uh, in quality journalism, journalists engage such as leaving out their own emotions, relying on uh, source quotations to inject opinions, um, and uh, really generally focusing on delivering the facts. But what my research has shown is that this strategical, strategic ritual of objectivity kind of coexists quite happily with what I call a strategic ritual of emotionality. And what I mean by that is that just as journalists are strategically objective in the way that they do their work in strategic ways to actually engage their audiences. And so for me, uh, the two uh, coexist uh, very happily and produce high quality journalism that audiences are able to relate to and engage with. And I guess that is the key. I mean, it's one thing to to have this uh, this strategic ritual of objectivity, and we need that. We need we need it to be objective and free from as much bias as possible. Except it does seem like it would need to resonate with us as human beings. We're not robots. We're not automatons. We're 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 humans, and um, it, it it seems like especially these stories about PTSD or the opioid epidemic or um, you know, just any anything that really highlights a, a, a universal pain, 
um, it, it would be just as valuable to me to know not just that you're objective, but that you can connect to me as a human, as the reader. Well, that, that's absolutely right. So this kind of uh, personalized storytelling is absolutely crucial for understanding the experience of other people uh, who might be very, very different from us. We can often find it very difficult to understand what uh, everyday life is like, let's say, for a veteran who's suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, for a single mother who's relying on food stamps, or indeed for somebody um, who has uh, just survived a major earthquake and has lost their home and their family. But it is through telling these stories that concretely demonstrates, you know, what's it actually like if um, you are uh, suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. So that's, like, like you're, you're saying, is a way of making us connect to these universal emotions um, that we all experience because we've all loved and lost um, and we all recognize these emotions even if we've never had the concrete experiences that people live through and that actually shape these big events um, that Pulitzer Prize-winning stories are often about. Yeah, no, I, 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 I'm with you on that. Karen, let's take a break. Again, we're speaking with Karen Val jorgensen of Cardiff University in the UK. She's walking us through some work she did there in the School of Journalism on Pulitzer Prize-winning storytelling and how it is really not just about objectivity, but also emotionality is most likely to win you a Pulitzer. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see and be the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, today we're talking with Dr. Karen Val Jorgensen. She is a, a professor um, and the director of research development and environment at the School of Journalism at Cardiff University in the United in the UK. And uh, she is walking us through some research she has done on emotional journalism, especially as it applies to Pulitzer Prize-winning stories. She's been talking to us about the importance of really having strategic ritual objectivity. Uh, the uh, this uh, you know kind of journalists need to be ritualistically objective, fact based, you know, quoting their sources. But they also, she suggests, want to have strategic ritual of emotionality, where they have the ability to actually share the experiences of those that they're reporting on in such a way that it can connect to the hearts and minds of others. Have I got that fairly accurate, Karen? Absolutely right. Yes. Oh, we're still struggling with your phone, but uh, I, I just I, the problem is it won't. It's a problem we can't necessarily fix right this second. So let me just ask you this, Karen, and see if we can make the phones work any better. How do we how do we inject emotionality? Is this a level of like maturity, or is this as you were saying? Because a lot of these Pulitzer Prize winning um, stories are written by teams. Does it help to have? a team to create such a balance between emotion and objectivity? Or how does the journalist make sure that their emotion doesn't alter the facts, alter the the real impact of the story? Well, that's a really interesting question, because uh, one of the fascinating things is that 
they don't teach you in journalism school how to make your stories emotional. Right. They teach you how to gather the facts. Um, and so it's something that journalists have to learn on the job. It's something that sociologists would call tacit knowledge, knowledge that you sort of incur through the way you're being socialized in your profession. So it's something that journalists learn to do and something that they master once they actually know how to do the sort of nuts and bolts work of actually reporting the facts and gathering the information. Um, and so it requires a kind of emotional intelligence on the part of the journalists to understand how to find the right kinds of stories that are going to resonate with audiences. Mm. Um, and, yeah. No, yeah, that's, to me that is, it, it is, it's, it's kind of a, it's an art form, but they are writers, and it seems like the best writers overall are people that know how to connect to the heart. Well, that's right. I mean, essential to cultivate compassion and to make audiences care. So um, can, I, can I just give you a, uh, a quick example from one of the stories yes. that I've looked at? That'd be great, please. Yeah, so so one one um, story that particularly interested me was uh, the story that won the Pulitzer Prize in the public service reporting category in 2016. And that's usually a category that's associated with very hardcore investigators. Again, is a news agency that's associated with very objective reporting. And this the series of stories that won the Pulitzer were, um, uh, was focused on um, what happens um, in the seafood industry? So what are the working conditions like for people who provide the seafood that ends up on our tables, in our supermarkets, and in our restaurants? And even though this story was based on lots and lots of research, lots and lots of facts about labor conditions in the seafood industry, it actually opened with this account of the experience of slaves um, uh, in Bur- or from Burma, who are actually forced to work in the seafood industry in Indonesia. So um, to, just to read to you quickly from the opening of the series, it starts as follows. It starts, the Burmese slaves sat on the floor and stared through the rusty bars of their locked cage hidden on a tiny tropical island thousands of miles from home. Just a few yards away, other workers loaded cargo ships with slave-caught seafood that clouded the supply networks. But the eight imprisoned men were considered flight risks, laborers who might dare run away. They lived on a few bites of rice and curry a day in a space barely big enough to lie down, stuck until the next trawler forces them back to sea. So, so this is, mm. is a, a very clear example of how you use these almost kind of novelistic stories as a way of putting audiences on the ground of seeing what actually happens, um, what are the kinds of underpinning, puts us into the lived experience of these slaves uh, working in the seafood industry and maybe makes us think twice about um, having those prawns the next time we go out for, for a meal. Right. And it really uh, and you can see that it's not like it's a, it's full of so much embellishment. It's really just like you said, helping us dial in the actual lived experience of the participant. I mean, really, um, I guess to create a, a change, 
that is memorable, you most of us would want the facts more, but more importantly, we'd want to almost go there. And it's almost, especially as a print journalist, it seems like the ability to be able to take us on the journey and be in the boats um, while they're where they're holding these slaves. Um, that really would be their job to make sure that they get us all the way there. Well, that, that's right, and I think that's traditionally one of um, the kind of features we associate with the best of journalism is able to take us to places and to see the lives of people that we might not otherwise encounter. Um, so, in a way, journalists act as the kinds of eyewitnesses uh, on the part of the public, and the more concrete the details are, able to provide us with, and the more they can sort of put us inside the minds of the people who are living through these events, uh, the more powerful um, is the kind of resonance that that can create with audiences. Yes, absolutely. Well, Karen, thank you. Um, Boy, uh, brilliant work, I think, and a beautiful insight, I think, for all of us, especially as so many people are out there throwing out this uh, term fake news um, but really what this becomes is as you listen to it is it becomes real news. And, and I guess every journalist ought to aspire to at least the quality of those two um, rituals as she was defining strategic ritual of objectivity and a strategic ritual of emotionality, being able to honor the heart and the mind of those in the stories, but also um, keeping a strategic ritual of being objective to the facts. And again, that's um, that might be being dismissed in today's day and age where it's easy to just grab the headline and to push it out there. It's easy to just um, chase the story with unnamed sources. And it's important that a journalist can have unnamed sources. But um, one of the things I loved in uh, in my journalistic studies was multiple sourcing, right? Get two or three or four sources that are saying the same thing before you report something, especially before you just throw out this term unnamed sources. I think, again, in a world where everybody is using leaks to promote their position and their agenda, especially like when you think about Washington, D.C., the leaks can be coming from anywhere and by anywhere. We've we've already heard uh, examples of the White House leaking certain information intentionally, but even uh, we've heard of... um, the FBI director Comey through a friend leaking information in order to get uh, some parts of a story out that needed to be out. And so we know it's part of the world there. But as far as journalists go, it's it's critical that they double source and remain objective. And also what I didn't realize as importantly was it's important that they tell the story in a way that we can all hear it. I mean, how much went down on Ferguson? Do you remember how much uh, backlash and, and, and interest and intrigue in the media there was because of the Ferguson shootings and um, and the riots there? How powerful would it be to actually be able to then access some really effective writing by journalists who could take any of us into the situation and help us better understand what's going on in inner city America, what might be going on in Chicago when it comes to uh, gang violence and um, deaths there, when it, what's going on in some of the, you know, the, the different battles that are happening over other legislation of our country or uh, illegal immigration. There's power if we allow these journalists to let us into the minds and hearts of others. So, 
Appreciate Karen Val Jorgensen and her work there at Cardiff University in the UK. It's just learning, folks. That's all it is, right? No harm, no foul. We're just here to learn and figure out how we can be better consumers of the media as well. We want objectivity. We also want emotionality to take it a little deeper. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. That's hour number one of the show. We'll be back next hour. More fun straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show, hour number two of the program. If you missed hour number one, you can go to iTunes to tune in to Stitcher. Go to BYURadio.org. It's everywhere, folks. You're not going to want to miss it. Interesting discussion about Pulitzer Prize winners. Uh, something I swear I got um, a letter in the mail. It was either from them, Pulitzer Prize, uh, or us, or um, from Random House Clearing. Out. Random Clearinghouse. You could be a Pulitzer Prize winner. <laughs> yes, you too could win a Pulitzer Prize. So um, today we got a great show, so much to talk about. Uh, we're going to be replaying an interview about super bosses with Sidney Finkelstein and, and how to be an exceptional leader and master the flow of talent on your team. Many uh, people have called me a super boss. Boys, guys, guys. Now, yeah, I'm really not a boss. There's there's Don Shaline. Now he's a super boss. <sighs> you guys went really quiet there. Um, I thought I'd get like more like support on that one. Hmm. That's it. How long have we been doing this together? You know, a couple we're ha- years. I'm I'm going to call a meeting today. A meeting at eleven o'clock today. Um, we're having a meeting. Okay. <clears throat> About. There's one that's been scheduled. Super for is this different from the now. meeting that's already yeah already yeah. scheduled? Same meeting. Okay. Same meeting. Meeting within a meeting. We'll be talking super bosses in our meeting today, and we will also be talking about super bosses on the show. How exceptional leaders master the flow of talent. Plus, we've got a lot of kind of crazy stories. You're just not going to believe uh, a gator attack on a golf course. Hmm. If you were thinking of starting a business as um, a golf ball retriever in a lake in in florida near the everglades i'd probably choose a different profession i think for, that's the second worst after that one in cambodia or wherever that yeah. was with the guy yeah. getting in Indonesia the sewer or wherever it was yeah. yeah that we'll talk about that story and i have my own very own lake story when i worked at a golf course because i also got in the water to pull some like weeds and but it was like a koi pond or something, right? That was a huge oh. lake, but I was attacked. By, by crocodiles s- or piranhas? I'm not going to say. I'll okay. save that for later. But Mosquitoes. it was but it, it was a kind of a reptilian thing that jumped on my arm was it and just, stayed on my arm because I couldn't get it unstuck. It was a gecko, wasn't it? Those <sighs> things are harmless. Are they? Yeah. They're not harmless when you've never seen a gecko. I had never seen a gecko. The only gecko I've ever seen. I reached my hand in. The next thing I know, I got a gecko sucking my arm. I don't know if it was sucking it, but it was stuck to my arm. Yeah. The only gecko I've ever seen tried to sell me insurance. I know. You know what? Those geckos, they must be – they're hard workers because they're great insurance agents. Great accent too. Yeah. Great accent. Mm. 
And, uh, yeah, so I had a gecko attack. We'll talk about that. Man also arrested for taking his pet crocodile to the beach for a walk. Chris Christie took his pet crocodile to the beach? No. He just... Alternative facts. He just went to the beach. We'll get to that crazy story. Also, um, emergency crews rescue a Virginia girl trapped inside her sofa. I've, hmm. been, I've been there. Yeah, some of those sofas. And I don't, I don't even know if it was like a rollaway sofa, like with a bed in it. I don't know. The, hi- the height of bed? It wasn't a height of bed. I don't. I think she just. She just fell into a default just, sofa. Yeah. Some sofas wear down. And there the, are sofas that when you sit in them, you're really in the yeah, sofa. Some yeah. of those can be really comfortable. Yeah. In this case, life-threateningly. Life-threatening, and we'll talk about it. Plus, apparently people are making money now Mm. on her tragedy. No way. Yeah. Wow. Certain R&B artists. Yes. Not good. Not good. All of that straight ahead. But first, to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what should we be paying attention to? A new report, 44% of Americans have regrets about buying their current home or the buying process in general, according to Trulia, who's a uh, real estate online website the top homeowner regret not choosing the correct home size 42 percent say that and even huh. among those earning above one hundred thousand dollars a year 16 percent cited inadequate size as a regret really yeah when I mean, you think they can like probably too big or too small exactly okay my Either regret way. is not i bought a north-facing house yeah Ooh, yeah big mistake the report finds that many people faced with higher mortgages, higher rents, are having to settle for less when it comes to space. Renters' top regret was wishing that they had bought a home instead of renting. That's 41% because the prices are probably about the same. Right. Uh, for those of you deciding between buying a home and renting, remember one thing. It's cheaper to buy a home than it is to rent over seven years in every U.S. market across the country. So buy. If you're going to be there for seven years, buy. Buy, buy, buy. If you don't know, I guess you have to figure that out. That's hard. Okay. I didn't realize people had so many regrets. Yeah, I know. Interesting. Who knows? Generation Z, kids born between 1996 and 2010, account for 26% of all people in the U.S. TV homes, the largest generation of individuals today, according to Nielsen's latest total audience report, combined millennials and Generation Z people, so that's 17 to 34, make up nearly half of the TV audience. Oh, boy. Generation Z is the most diverse TV generation. And uh, let's see here. Millennials and Generation Z are watching nearly half of all TV content. So when it comes to how TV looks in the next 5, 10, 15 years, it's going to be the youngins who make all the decisions. <laughs> and you older people, Matt, that will is have to so just deal with scary. it. Well, it's actually me too because I'm not in this group either. Uh, so it says they, they, they're watching TV differently. Nielsen uh, ratings... It says both generations display similar tastes for emerging technologies like multimedia and devices, but Generation Z is accessing non-linear TV, non-linear TV more on more expensive devices like smart-enabled TVs hmm. and video game consoles. Okay, yeah. The reason is because they're living at home with their parents and they have access to larger uh, piles of money for better equipment. That's why BYU Broadcasting is on every little device you can get us on. Right. BYU Television is. That's amazing. Try to put That's us why. everywhere. So Roku, that, you're on every game box. You're on The everything. millennials have gone out on their own, and mm-hmm. so it's kind of tougher. So they're doing like the Roku flash drives and stuff. Whereas the Generation Z, they're kind of still in that transition phase. So they're watching on their parents' TV. That's right. And uh, the generation, the, the greatest generation, and also the baby boomers, they're still watching Andy Griffiths. Yeah, it says, by comparison, the greatest generation, 71%. 
or 71 years old or older, 8% Hispanic, 9% non-Hispanic black when it comes to diversity. Wow. Did I ever tell you that I got to do a Nielsen survey? I got money in the mail for watching TV. It was the greatest gig ever. Really? Did they know that you were an addict? And then... (laughs) I never got to do it again. They never invited me again. <laughs> you ruined the ratings. In other news, Cowboy wide receiver Lucky Whitehead is asking for help in locating his pit bull blitz after burglars took the dog and demanded $10,000 in ransom. No way. Whitehead tells a local Dallas uh, NBC affiliate uh, that he was in Florida last week when Blitz was taken from his Texas home, along with some shoes and bags. Whitehead has uh, since gotten phone calls demanding that he, quote, cut a check. If he wants to get his Ten dog grand back. grand if you want your dog back. Uh, so he goes, I'm not cutting any check unless I get proof that Blitz is okay. Well, that'll be easy, right? Want proof of life that my get dog's today's okay. newspaper with a that's, picture of Blitz that's right. going to the bathroom on it. Whitehead has, has called the situation uh, heartbreaking and sickening. The 25-year-old Whitehead tried to get detectives on the case, but they were unable to trace the dog napper's phones. Whitehead says uh, they probably used a burner phone. Yeah. That's what they use on TV. Totally. Burners all and then the they always have to break it in half yeah. mm-hmm. and throw it out of the car. That's how you do it. Really dramatic. Like Whitehead says he's the suspect, he suspects the heist was an inside job and he plans to talk to some of the people close to him. Like other dogs Could took be. him or? Probably <laughs> his friends. It's probably his dog trying to get raise his own money. Hmm? He faked. Ooh, fake your faked own kidnap? Own kidnapping. Could dog be. napping. I've seen that on Law and Order. Oh, yeah. Except it was a guy, not a dog. Uh, and finally, the beloved book and animated character, Winnie the Pooh, is being censored in China, according yeah. to the BBC. The Chinese name for Winnie the Pooh is Little Bear Winnie, is being blocked in Chinese social media sites because bloggers have been comparing the plump bear to China's president, Xi Jinping. <laughs> animated gifts of the character were deleted from the app WeChat, and those uh, who commented on the site uh, got an air message in return, so the, the 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 post was deleted. One internet meme that went viral was an encounter between the president and Japanese prime minister during an awkward handshake. Social media users combined the image to the two politicians with that of Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh because <laughs> the Japanese prime ministers look sleepy all the time like Eeyore, so it works. Eeyore. Another one that made the rounds online was when the Chinese president met President Obama. This time the picture showed that Winnie the Pooh with Tigger because Tigger's tall and skinny, <laughs> yeah. like President Obama. And uh, so, so the crackdown on Winnie the Pooh and ridicule of China's leaders are strategically timed. There's an important community or Communist Party conference scheduled, which several top government jobs So they've grabs, banned so. Winnie the Pooh in all of China. On their social media sites. There, I'm yes. pretty sure Winnie the Pooh has been around for many, many decades, whereas these leaders have not been. Right. But What's you know, your point? You're in charge. It's, it's not like they were based on these leaders is what I'm saying. Really? There's one that was funny with the Chinese leader with his head popped up through the sunroof of a car, uh-huh. and they set microphones right there on the car, so he speaks, and, you know. Yeah. And he does, and so they found this car, which is basically a car with Winnie the Pooh's head on it, and put them <laughs> side by side, like this is the it's same, exactly the same thing. And the, the leader doesn't like that, so they just, you know, pull, a, you know, flip a switch, and all that gets blocked. He's a beloved <sighs> character. Yeah. Who the Ch- the Chinese leader is a beloved character. Hmm. But the Chinese leader doesn't wear a little red vest. Right. That always... And does the Chinese leader wear pants? All the time. Does he eat a lot of honey? No. Right. See, so that has nothing to do with me. But he's concerned because people are saying, look, you look fat. That's essentially what it is. They're fat shaming the president of China. Is Winnie the Pooh fat? He's plump. He's a bear. Plump, round, chubby, full of honey. He's a honey bear. Yeah. 
Speaking of Honey Bear. Hmm. Just one of okay. those transitions? <laughs> no, Honey Bear, isn't that the name of the... the? That's what your wife calls you, right? Yeah. Wow. Now, there's a there's a show, a television show with the, the girl, the tiara girl, the little... Sophia the, the little first? girl that... And the mom and dad got in trouble legally and... The dad's name was Honey Bear, I thought. Huh. What? Wow. Do you know that show? No, not at all. No. <laughs> you remember the girl that became really famous? They're all a little overweight and they, oh, they honey lost boo-boo. their weight. Oh, honey, honey boo-boo. boo-boo. And her dad wow. is Honey Bear, I think. Wow. Yeah. You watched that show? Well, you, I just described it. You, that's about how well I watched it. Was it was a sociology experiment. He was seeing how other people live their lives. Maybe he was just hungry for honey. I'm totally hungry. It's how it's how Matt will sit, and sometimes he practice diagnoses people. He'll sit there and watch TV and go, "Well, if I was talking with them, his I throat's would a little know. dry right now. He could use some honey, maybe some honey tea." <sighs> I was having a choking attack. Yeah. And you know what's funny? Nobody came to my help. Not one of you came over to hit my back. I even gave the sign of I'm choking. Yeah, but it wasn't like Actually, the really. sign of I'm choking is putting both of your hands up to your neck, which you did not do. That's true. I didn't want to risk it. Didn't want to risk it. Hey, uh, gator attacks, by the way. Um, so if you've got a job in Florida diving for balls in a golf course lake or pond, get a new job. Or better life insurance. Just extend it. Increase the amount. Right. According to uh, police, uh, Friday, a Rotonda Rotonda Golf and Country Club employee was uh, uh, attacked by a gator. He managed to free himself and call 911. The victim, is 50-year-old man, suffered injuries to his left arm and was taken to the hospital as he was trying to dive for golf balls. Hmm. At a very lake in Salt Lake City, thank heavens we don't have gators, I was attacked by a gecko. A gecko family, I guess I would say. So I was so attacked that my hip waders filled with some water. Wow. As I was trying to get a gecko off of my arm because it was stuck to my arm. Are you sure it wasn't a leech? It it was a gecko. Hmm. And it freaked me out because I had never seen a gecko. And I had to bare hand grab that gecko. Wow. And not to make anybody angry i threw him to the middle of the lake you were so brave thank you how did you survive such a traumatic event (sighs) just breathing through it did you provide any self-counseling later on in life to help you that's what made me later decide i do not want to do any manual labor Mm. and i that's where i decided i needed to get some degrees because i didn't want to do Oh, okay. Gecko. I hung drywall for a week. He went, eh. Hey, this is hard work. <laughs> not going to do that. <laughs> this is crazy. Well, it could be worse. Uh, you may be a young woman trapped inside a sofa. If you live in Virginia, fire and other emergency crews rushed to Virginia home to free a girl from a folding couch Wednesday. It sounded like a very odd call. I wanted to see what was going on. So Fire Chief A.G. Moore showed up at the scene. He says, I've never seen anything like it. The young caller told police that another child was stuck inside of a sofa. When the chief entered the home, uh, their sunroom, he said... He saw emergency crews assessing the situation. The chief was told that two girls approximately 12 years of age were playing hide-and-seek during the game. One of the girls got folded into a sleeper sofa, so it was a sleeper sofa, not to be confused with a sleeper cell, which is different. 
Sleeper Cell would never do that to you. No. They're much more they're much more reserved than this. Uh, her friend was not strong enough to get the girl back out, though. So the, the, they folded the girl into the sleeper sofa. And it's a situation where those sofa beds can be awkward and heavy to begin with, the Chief Moore said. When you have a child in there, it takes a lot to uh, pull her out with all the additional weight. And after confirming the child simply was folded into the sofa and not stuck on any metal pieces, it took emergency crews about two minutes to free the child. When she got out, she was fine, the chief said, but uh, she had this hankering for a burrito. (laughs) I added that. That's Nice. So anyway, uh, pretty cool story because now you can say, hey, what would you do this summer? And you say I was folded into into a couch and I couldn't get out. And the fire department came and got me. And now there's an R&B artist who has created a song about this. Really? It's not about a little girl, but it's about him and his wife. Uh, he's kind of taken her story and, you know, made it his own. Holy cow. And there are like 20 different parts to this song. Can we, but can we, we listen we've to got, it? We've, we've got, got the it? first part. We've got part one today. Okay, cool. Let's listen to it. Seven o'clock in the evening, playing hide and seek with the wifey. I'm hiding out in the sofa when my wife comes in the room and seeks me. She says, are you underneath the table or behind the TV? And I don't say a word since this has got to be the best hiding spot in history. She says, can we stop playing now? Cause I am super starving. And Taco Table's got three tacos for a dollar, and that's a bargain. But first you gotta tell me where you're hiding out right now. Then she says, forget you, I'm going to get some chow. Then I heard the front door slam, and I think to myself, oh Pam, I ain't falling for that old trick. She must think she's really slick. I was gonna say something, but my cell phone started to ring. Now she's trying to call me, but my phone's out of reach. Then I discover that I'm stuck and I can't budge an inch. This stinking couch has got me in its powerful clinch. Why did I hide in the sofa? Who on earth hides in a sofa? I never liked the sofa. Now I will die in the sofa. If only Pam had looked closer, she'd see I was in the sofa. I sure hope I don't pass out, pass out, pass out, pass out, pass out, pass out. What do Ralph Lauren, Bill Walsh, George Lucas, and Mary Kay Ash have in common? Besides being really big names in the business world and being known as exceptional leaders, there is one thing that distinguishes them from their peers. It's their ability to groom talent and train a new generation of leaders. Well, several months ago, we talked to Dr. Sidney Finkelstein, uh, who is a professor of management and faculty director of the Center for Leadership at Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. Professor Finkelstein is the author of over 20 books, including his newest book, Super Bosses, where he talks about those leaders and uh, the power of uh, grooming great talent. I begin the interview asking Dr. Finkelstein, what is a super boss? You know, a super boss is, uh, we all, we've all had bosses. So the super boss is a boss that actually helps us get better, helps us accomplish more than we ever could have done otherwise. It's the ideal boss, and in the process, the boss gets better, 
but we get much better as well, and it accelerates our career, creates opportunities for us. Well, and right now, everybody listening, they might have a super boss. It might not be their current boss, but, I mean, somewhere in their life, they've probably run into or experienced somebody that, that just stretched them to be better. Yeah, and I think that's uh, I think that's right. The more I talk to people about this idea about super bosses, the more people relate, and they always reflect back on the various bosses uh, that that everyone's had. And you know, sometimes they're good ones, sometimes they're not so good ones. And occasionally, you get this this super boss, this person that really helped your career and really uh, cared enough about you to help you get better. Mm. It's a fantastic thing. What what made you want to focus on this? I mean, as a as a business professor, I mean, you, you could focus on any topic. Why the super boss? Yeah, it's a great question. I I, uh, I actually noticed the pattern in a couple of industries that I found really fascinating. So, for example, if you look at the NFL, and I'm a big football fan, yeah. and you look at head coaches and the trees of talent that. Uh, some have talked about in the past. It turns out that Bill Walsh, the former head coach of the San Francisco 49ers, was just a giant developer of talent. You go look at many of his assistant coaches. Uh, they, they went on to become head coaches. In fact, you know, this past season that just concluded in the NFL, out of the 32 head coaches, 20 came from the tree of talent of Bill Walsh. Wow. So I noticed that. I thought, wow, it's an unbelievable thing. Who else is out there? Who is doing this? And how is that happening? And that kind of got me rolling on this whole question. No, that and that is so true. And then it's interesting too because a lot of them also became super coaches, super bosses themselves, right? They they've almost learned how to keep growing the talent. Yeah, that's the ideal thing, you know. When you have that special boss that teaches you, that helps you, and then you go off and get a bigger job yourself, are you going to pay it back to 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 others? Are you going to help them get better? And you know, if you have an organization loaded with people like this, you're going to win a lot more than you otherwise would. Yeah. Is that not the competitive advantage? It seems like everyone can, I mean, and they do in the NFL too, for example, they, they can take your coach, they can pay them more, but you can't necessarily just make somebody a super boss. No, you, uh, you can't, it doesn't just happen without, uh, without a, lot of, a lot of effort. But the truth is, I think, Matt, anyone can become a super boss in any walk of life. Even if you're, you know, a supervisor in a, in a factory, if you're running an office or you're, uh, uh, you're a sales manager, whatever you happen to be, I think anyone could become a super boss. You have to want to do it. You have to think about it. But it's not impossible to mm. do it. It's not, it's not rocket science, yeah, but right. it is a little bit of hard work. Talk about what is, like, what are the strategies? What are the behaviors that a super boss might manifest that, that, that's different than just the average boss? Well, it starts with uh, where you get the talent from in the first place. Super bosses go out of, uh, out of their shell looking for talent. They're talent spotters. They're always on the lookout. And you know, there's a great story, again, about Bill Walsh. He went out to, um, to scout a really highly touted quarterback, and the quarterback was, uh, was practicing and trying out and throwing the ball to uh, a second stringer on the team who was his, co- his roommate in college. And there was something about that second stringer that really got Bill Walsh's attention. He goes back. He doesn't, he doesn't draft the, the, the big-name quarterback. He drafts in the eighth or tenth round the, uh, the guy he was throwing the ball to. And you know who that turned out to be? Who? It was Dwight Clark. Who oh, was it really? The yeah, the catch. 
Lee Catch, exactly. So they're looking for talent in unusual places. They're always on the hunt for talent, and, they're, and they think about it that way. And then once you have those people, once you have people with that type of potential, the question really becomes how could you help them get better? And they do it by motivating them. They do it by teaching them. And they, you know, they, they also do it by inspiring. It's, uh, it's one of these soft words, but it really means something. You know, they get people all fired up and energized. And, you know, Ralph Lauren, another one of the super bosses, you know, the fashion king, he used to tell his people, you know, everybody follows us. We set the standard. We're the ones that they all look to to see what's going on in the world of fashion. And that, and that, you got to believe that. You got to be authentic with that. But that so gets people so, so energized, so inspired that they want to just run through a brick wall to make everything happen for that super boss. And they get better in the process. Yeah. And I guess if you have the talented people, um, and and the, and they're inspired. Then something special can come from that. It seems like some bosses are, they might be afraid to hire people more talented than themselves. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, uh, I think that I think that does happen. Um, insecurity is a real damaging uh, element of uh, human nature, and certainly in organizations. But if you just step back for a minute and think about it, if you hire smarter people, better people, and they're working for for you. Don't you think you're going to be able to perform more effectively? Right. You're going to hit your own targets, your own goals. Um, that's not a bad thing. They're going to make you look better. If you hire a bunch of people that are weaker, that uh, you know, don't really match up to you, you might feel like you know more than they do. But how are they going to help you accomplish what you need to get accomplished? Right. Even if they move on, way. right? Even if, they, even if they're only there for five years because they're so exceptional, they're picked away – you you still you still have them as a relationship. You still can have them as a peer. It's powerful. Yeah, you can. You you really and you want to work that that network. And this is not you know a, a network that you're just talking to people every now and then. You look at uh, say uh, Lorne Michaels from Saturday Night Live. Of course, so many great talents have gone out, off of that show, become you know world famous people. Uh, you just look at late night TV as one example with Jimmy Fallon and Seth Meyers. Well, guess who the executive producer mm. is of both of those shows? turns out to be Lorne Michaels. So even though he's lost, in quotes, great talent, he's figured out a way to continue to work with them and benefit from those relationships. Interesting. And, and then still, and maybe he's the executive producer because he's still seen by these mega talents as inspiring and able to get yeah. more out of them. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, that's exactly right. That's power, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you know, we all, we all do whatever it is we do in our careers and our jobs. But we're talking a little bit here of, of legacy, if, uh, uh, you know, if you really think about it, Matt. And legacy is a great thing. We all do what we do. But imagine you can look back at your career at any point in time and you can say, wow, I really helped other people do more than they ever thought possible. Did Jimmy Fallon think he was going to you know, be the successor to Johnny Carson right. uh, when, he, when he was you know, a 20-year-old trying out for, uh, for SNL? I, I don't think so. But wow, when, when you look at what, what Lorne Michaels was able to help happen, take a great talent, and accelerate their careers. It's it's pretty exciting. Mm. It's um, I guess part of it is their ability to 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 see the talent, but then I guess it's also their ability to to raise up the talent to to push back. What have you learned about that? What what do they? How do they hire people differently? And and how do they actually maximize the talent of their people? Yeah. So they so they're definitely looking for what I call diamonds in the rough. Those uh, those people that. Um, 
maybe not everyone else is, is looking for, and they're always on the lookout, uh, lookout for talent. But what they really do on a day-to-day basis is really uh, remarkable. They, their, the super bosses will roll up their sleeves and work with their, with their staff members, their team members, their employees, um, not every day you know, doing that because they have their own work to do, but they get close to the word that so many people get nervous about. You know what the word is? It's micromanagement. You don't want to go over that line. Right. But what is wrong with actually engaging closely with the people that work for you? And in fact, super bosses do that. You, you know what it's like? It's uh, it, it's like that the old way that people used to learn how to do whatever it is they were going to do in their career. It's called an apprenticeship, mm-hmm. and it's the way it's the way the world of work operated for centuries, and it's gone by the wayside. And I think what super bosses have, have done is they've recognized that there are, there are elements of this apprenticeship approach to helping other people get better, this close hand-to-hand working, this constant uh, teaching and motivating that, uh, that really can be beneficial. I think it's a great thing. Mm. And um, I, I, that's, there's something, too, when you have to mentor somebody when, because you – you actually might systematize your thinking too a little bit, and so so you're making you're actually reevaluating what you do do every day, to, in order yeah. to better instill it into others or share it with others. It's a it's a great point because it does it does sharpen you. You know, I've often said, and of course I'm a teacher, I'm a professor, uh, so it's kind of the thing I do. But I've often said that anyone who teaches someone else about whatever whatever the material is, whatever the idea is, they're going to get much better at it themselves by the mere fact that they are teaching. It's really a remarkable thing. And so this is also happening for, happening for super bosses. And, and then you add one other element that I, I love about what super bosses do, and I'm sure many people listening will, will know if their boss does this or will maybe wish their boss did, does, did this, but they, the super bosses customize how they motivate and interact with the people on their team. Mm. It's one thing to talk about you know, leadership styles and all this type of stuff, and everyone's different. Everyone, you know, we all have our personal style of how we operate. But what super bosses are able to do is put to the side how they might prefer to operate and customize how they interact with the individuals on their team to get the most out of them and to teach them the different things that, that you know, different people on the team don't all need to learn exactly the same thing. And that type of customization is a really powerful a uh, really powerful element, I think, of what the Superboss playbook is all about. Mm, excellent stuff. Let's take a break. Again, we are speaking with Sidney um, Finkelstein, uh, who is the Stephen Roth Professor of Management and Faculty Director of the Tuck Center for Leadership at Dartmouth College. Uh, powerful lessons here um, from his book, Superbosses, How Exceptional the Flow of Talent. We'll take a break, folks. Come back and continue this discussion um, about how this can impact your business, your life, and really your legacy, as uh, Dr. Finkelstein's been teaching us. We'll be right back. More right after the break. To the Matt Townsend Show. Do you feel like you have a super boss, a boss that understands you, your talent, and knows how to get the best out of you? Are you a super boss? Well, joining us is the author of the book Super Bosses How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent, which was published just last month. And uh, he's, he's also a professor 
at um, Tuck at Dartmouth. Um, his name, again, is Dr. Sidney Finkelstein. He's the Stephen Roth Professor of Management, Faculty Director at Tuck Center for Leadership at the University of Dartmouth. And um, we're honored to have you back. Again, Dr. Finkelstein, great work on this bo- on the book Super Bosses. Thank you, Matt. I, um, I, I love business books and especially, you know, kind of well-researched, well-cited books. Talk to me about uh, – in the HBR article, the Harvard Business Review article that you did, you talked about three types of super bosses. What are those? The glorious yeah. winners and well, – explain those three. Sure. Um, and, I, you know, in doing this uh, research, I didn't know I'd end up with this this kind of um, uh, analysis of these three types, but they're the ones that kept coming up time and time again. So the first I call nurturers, and they're maybe closest to what many people might think about as, as mentors. They're kind of super mentors. They, do, they really do help you get better. They care about, what, what, uh, about your development, and uh, it's kind of their, their mindset. Norman Brinker, uh, who started the Brinker's chain, Chili's uh, restaurant chain, uh, he's, he's the classic nurturer. So many people that work for him are today senior executives in, at T.F. Chang, at Lone Star, at all kinds of different uh, multi-unit restaurant chains. Uh, second category is more of a uh, more about creative types, and I call them iconoclasts. Uh, these are people that um, uh, are in creative industries in some way. Lorne Michaels, uh, Miles Davis, even in jazz, that uh, um, that help other people get better as a natural kind of organic outgrowth of the work that they're doing. So they, they attract great people, great talent that want to work with, uh, with, with you know, the Lorne Michaels of the world, and they interact and they, and they help other people get better just in a kind of a natural type of, type of way. Hmm. And then the third, uh, the third type are the, maybe the most unusual, and I hope I could, I could say it on the radio, but I call them uh, glorious, glorious bastards. <laughs> uh, and uh, they're tough. They are tough as could be. Uh, but, boy, if you can survive and, and deal with the pressure that they put on you, the, the career trajectory is gigantic. And Who's an example like, of one of the glorious type? Yeah. Uh, well, Larry Ellison, the founder and longtime CEO, now chairman of, of Oracle, oh, yeah. uh, is in that category. And, then, you know, people that work for him, and he's got that <laughs> reputation of being really, really tough. And it goes to show you, you know, that you can be a super boss, and being a super boss doesn't mean that you're just kind of a, a soft touch that just cares about people. Yeah, huggy, huggy. That, yeah, it's certainly possible. Nothing wrong with that. No one's going to say there's anything wrong with that. But there are other ways to, to get to the same place. And you look at some of the, some of the people that work for, Lauren Michael, uh, for uh, Larry Ellison over the years, and you have you know, Mark Benioff, who's today the CEO of Salesforce.com, and Craig uh, Conway and uh, Ray Lane, and a lot of superstars have come out of uh, his his management ranks. It seems like the way this is uh, you're describing the book um, is super boss is it's you can be any type of the three or more maybe, but it's you you need to just I guess care about results and care enough about and know enough about how to get it out of the people without crushing them, destroying yeah, them. You're right. You're, you're right. I mean, there are there are different ways to get to the same place in terms of your motivation, where you start, and those are these three categories of the you know the glorious bastards and the iconoclasts, etc. But you know what was really fascinating is when you look at the details of what they do, what super bosses do, no matter what their initial motivation may have been or their style may have been, they do so many of the same things. 
Hmm. And that's and that became what I call the super boss playbook. And obviously, there's a lot there's a lot to it, but it has to do with a couple of things that we've already talked about: how you find talent, um, motivation, and you know, pushing people, raising the bar, very high expectations, inspiring people, teaching people, coaching people, all these types of things, and the specific techniques or methods, and lots of stories about how they do it. They're actually very very common, despite how different these personalities happen to be. Wow. And is it um, – I mean, I guess it, adaptable is probably part of the key too, right? I mean, there's some people that you probably couldn't be a glorious bastard with, but you needed to be the nurturer with. So, yeah, well, do, Or do these people just kind of – those people just wouldn't grow up underneath that type of leader? They, yeah, they, they you know, Would they just opt out? You, you, you know – Getting, uh, finding the right place to be at any stage of life. This is true for personal lives, but it's certainly true for work lives. And getting a, a boss that you can manage and work with. I'll say two things about it. Number one, for, for anyone who has a super boss uh, as their boss, um, they are going to have to keep pace with that boss. They, uh, they're going to have to be working. They're going to have to be willing to make the commitment to work really, really hard to uh, do all the things that super bosses expect you to do. It's not, it's not easy, even for the nurturers that are, you right. know, are a little bit more supportive. It's not easy to do. So you, you have to be prepared to do that. And then secondly, I, I have to say this, not everyone has the same ambition and aspirations in life. And working for a super boss is one of the best ways you can accelerate your career, turbocharge your career, create gigantic opportunities. But, you know, let's face it, there are some people that, don't want to have that out of their work life. They want to put in their 40 hours and they want to contribute, but they, they, they're, they're not looking to advance in the same way. Working for a super boss won't work, and, and actually they'll discover that very quickly because the super boss won't let them stay with them. The, the super bosses only want people that have that, that aspiration, have that energy to get, to get better and do more with their, with their careers and their lives. So can I, as, can, can do, does the super boss find the, the ideal candidate, or as candidates, can we go looking for our super boss? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about that, you know, because super, working for a super boss for many people it, it just sounds fantastic, and it is yeah. for those people lucky enough to have that experience. So, how do you find them? And of course, that's the first question that I, you know, uh, students that I talk to. Uh, undergraduate students, MBA students, they're always asking that question, and I think you can. So here's a, here are a couple of tips. Um, let's say you're interviewing for a job and you're interviewing the person that's going to be your direct boss or potentially, if you get the job, is going to be your direct boss. Why not ask questions like, um, tell me a little bit about some of the people that worked for you in the past and where they are today. Hmm. And, of course, what you want to hear is that they've moved, there, they've moved on in their careers to bigger and better opportunities. Uh, tell, tell me how you spend... Now, what is a typical day for you like? Most people will ask, what, what, is a, what does a day look like for, for yourself in the job? But ask your boss, what does a typical day look like for you? And what you want to listen for is if some, you don't want a boss that pushes herself or himself into a world where they're going meeting after meeting after meeting, totally scripted, because there's no opportunity to be a super boss if you allow other people to dominate and control your schedule. Mm. We all got meetings. We know that. They're not going to go away. But does that mean that you have to be operating in this type of totally scripted way, or is there any room for almost like freelancing as a leader, where you could walk the halls, where you could spend 5 or 10 or 20 minutes or an hour with somebody, again, rolling up your sleeves and working, uh, working with them? So you could ask, and there are many other questions you could ask, 
um, or look for in your in your in your conversations with prospective bosses. But these are things; these are those are a couple of examples of things you can look for. Well, the very the very thought that you're interviewing your boss is is already a sign that you're you probably are a super talent, right? Because you're you're almost shopping which boss you want to work for instead of when you're desperate and you don't feel like a super talent. Um, a lot of times you just you'll do anything to get in. So what do you want me to be? What do you need me to be? I'll be whatever you want. But you're yeah. saying yeah, go in there, and if I guess if you're going in with talent um, and a willingness to work and and do whatever to succeed, um, yeah, then interviewing your boss that is power. It's uh, uh, it's absolutely right. But you know you you have to communicate effectively. Yeah, you got to you got to ask these questions. I think in an appropriate way, and I think the examples I just gave are yeah. not. No, they're not outrageous. You can you can do that as part of a conversation. But you know what we're really talking about here is a mindset for an individual that says, you know, I can have a little bit more control over my life. I can accomplish whatever it is I want to accomplish in my life, and I'm going to go for it. And we know there's bumps in the roads, and not everything works out. We understand that. But we also know that if you don't start with that mindset, or you don't adopt that mindset then you don't really have a chance. You've got to start with something. And so I like that idea of, of, of thinking about that and, 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 and you know, interviewing your, your, your boss or your prospective boss. You might not necessarily get everything you want to hear. You might choose for a variety of reasons to settle for something. That's, everyone's in a different situation. But you know, why not start with that mindset that right. says, that's what I want. Well, and two, when you get in the company, you might, you might see other super bosses to go to next or – you know, to, to move and to negotiate your career. Um, as we wrap it up, you brought up earlier, um, Sydney, about this idea of legacy. And so talk, maybe just in, talk and let us understand more about what, what is the, what is our legacy? What, because uh, there's a lot of people listening that are great bosses. They may be not a super boss yet, but they want to pick their game up. But when you mean legacy, what is the legacy of a boss? Yeah. Well, let me give you an example. Um, I mentioned Norman Brinker before, the guy that started the Chili's restaurant yeah. chain, Steak and Ale, Brinker's International, legendary person in his industry, truly a, uh, a classic nurturer and developer of talent. And um, you, uh, uh, I remember when he, when he died, which is just a few years ago, um, and his protégés, the f- former employees that are, on, that are doing these kind of amazing things these days, uh, running their own businesses or senior executives, they took out full-page ads in newspapers around the country, and and I still have a I still have the actual thing from the newspaper. I think it was the Wall Street Journal that I saw it in, and they have a nice picture of him on the top, and then in the bottom half they have a few things that they say about him. And they talk about his career, but the one line that struck me when I read it was, you know, Norman, thank you, Norman. You were more than just a a great leader. You when you walked into the room, you helped everybody else get better. You cared about everyone else. Hmm. And, you know, that's, that's a legacy that we're, we all can strive for. We, could, we all could work for. I've seen it in a lot of other, uh, with a lot of other super bosses um, of, a, of an elder, uh, el- when, when they're late, later in their career, and people that were affected by them coming up to tell them, to talk to them, to thank them. Um, I, I, I don't know. There's a lot of ways to live a life and, and live a career. And we all want to be successful. Of course, we want personal wealth and other other wonderful things. But legacy might be the single most important thing that we're going to remember when uh, when when, our, when when we're getting towards the end of our uh, uh, of our run. 
and uh, why not go for it and go for it uh, right as early as you can and adopt some of the super boss approach. Mm, love it. Uh, and great, great advice from you. Again, thank you, Dr. Sidney Finkelstein. Appreciate your great work, and uh, thanks for spending this time with us. Oh, thanks, Matt. Really enjoyed it. You bet. Go look up the book, the book Super Bosses, How Exceptional Leaders Master the Flow of Talent. And uh, really what you're getting is – Faculty director from the Tuck Center for Leadership at uh, Dartmouth College or Dartmouth University. You're getting the best. Um, it's power, folks. Power is in your legacy. Uh, it's one thing to go fulfill a job, it's another thing to not be forgotten because of it, to have influenced many, many other lives. That's why we do the show, folks. We want focus on legacy, not just on your income when it comes to your life and your job. We'll take a break, come back right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. So what do you do when um, you're at the beach and a giant crocodile walks down the beach on a leash with its owner? I think this is the soundtrack for that, by the it way. Is. This, is, uh, this is the number one selling CD for walking your crocodile. It's great music. Walk the croc down the block. <laughs> in Russia, by the way, the reptile was kept on a leash like a dog as he walked in shallow water on the beach in a Napa in Russia. He was spotted taking the animal, uh, this, the, the, the dog walker, the croc walker, which he called his pet to the beach where children played by the shore. Despite the species' fearsome reputation and links to hundreds of potentially dangerous attacks each year, it showed no sign of aggression. It was a very docile crocodile. It's perfect alliteration. No adults in the resort town of Annapa, Russia, appear to be concerned by the antics. The owner was promptly arrested after the video went viral, and his identity has not been revealed. He allegedly was keeping the croc in a tiny aquarium in his home and using it to make money. The crocodile has now been given to the zoo. Oh, it's sad because when you're kept in a tiny little aquarium, you got to stretch your little croc legs. Oh, yeah. I mean... They're not long anyway, but if you don't stretch them... You're never going to build up the muscle that you right. need in those little stubs. So you decide to harness up your your alligator or your crocodile, and then you take it out for a walk. Like, do you start just walking it down your stairs of your front of your apartment and then walk through town and then... Or do you take them in your car to the beach? You know, I just had this weird image in my mind of, like, having a crocodile... Bite the end of a rope, and you using the crocodile as kind of like a a wakeboard, Ew, like surfing on it. Yeah, I don't think he surfed on it because then Peta would be involved. Other groups oh, yeah. would be involved. Yeah. He was just trying to give his croc some love, you know. And now the next thing you know, he's in jail, and the croc is also in jail at the zoo. Well, don't punish the crocodile. What did the croc do? I mean, come on. That's why I like catch and release, where you just release the croc. On the beach with all the children. Yeah. Let him fend for himself. <laughs> or, you know, let him play uh, in the Gator Ball League. Yeah. That's for some reason. I When I invented that, I thought it would take off more. It's really not going anywhere. It's crazy. But uh, 
in order to push it a little harder, we're going to one more time try to promote Gator Ball right here in the United States. Next spring on BYU Radio, what do you get when you take America's greatest pastime and add one of the most feared creatures on the planet? You get Gator Ball. Gator Ball is the same as baseball with just a few minor adjustments. Two teams of nine players come onto the field wearing uniforms that have been dipped overnight in chicken and fish chum. Don't really want to play this. As the game commences, players need to make sure they're at the top of their game or else. If you hate long, drawn-out games, you'll love Gator Ball. Anytime a pitcher takes too long to throw the ball, or a coach calls for a review, and anytime there's a pickoff attempt, watch out for them Gators. Oh, man, these kids are taking way too long, man. Oh, look at that. And they're going to send out the Gators. You better watch out for that. You may try to steal third, but if you don't make it, a Gator's going to steal your foot. Somebody shoot him! Man, that gator, he locked his foot. He got him out of here, man. And if the gator gets you, the inning's over. Other exciting plays include the sacrifice fly, where the team offers up their injured or low-performing players. The double play, where the gators are given a chance to bite two players in one play. Or the walk-off home run where any player who hits a home run is allowed to walk off the field and watch the remainder of the game from the safety of the dugout. Oh, man, that ball is gone. He's a, oh, he's gone. Oh, man, he ain't going to be no Gator Fool tonight, man. Yeah. Gator ball. A game you can really sink your teeth into. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Hour number three of the program, locked and loaded for you. We got uh, Ron Hager, Dr. Ron Hager, our health evangelist, will be coming on the show to walk us through the uh, age-old question, is fit but fat? A big fat myth. Can you be fit and fat? Well, I'm a fat fit. Fit fat. Fit fat. It's it's not just a game for kids anymore. Can you be overweight but in, but in great shape? And do you need to just like have rock hard abs and buns of steel to, to actually be able to to be fit? These are important questions. These are. So we're going to ask our health evangelist, Dr. Ron Hager, uh, who is here, who will be here with the uh, from the BYU Exercise Sciences College of Life Sciences. It's going to be cool. Uh, he's, he always tears stuff like that apart in his gentle way. And the article we found had all these research references. And yeah. I mean, it, it was kind of a, a goofy topic. Of the, was it, is fat but fit a big fat myth? Kind of a yeah. you know fun topic. But it actually got into some actual numbers and some statistics. And then he has a whole other avalanche of information that he sent me mm-hmm. that I included. But I'm like – Because we've heard, on, we've heard stories about like running marathons isn't good for your health or certain – you know things that fit super fit people do right. that aren't necessarily, you know, helping their health long term. Yeah, or their joints anyway. Yeah, 
So do you have uh, your arsenal of unhealthy foods to talk about as he comes in? Not today. Oh. I could not find any <laughs> yeah, like, normally, Oreos or candy or any sort of sugar to talk about. So. Yeah, normally you yeah you like to throw them in a little bit of a spin. It's fun. I'll, I'll read it and kind of glance up as he's waiting here in the room and he just kind of shakes his head at me. And I kind of get my, my – I feel good that way. Yeah. I've been validated. It's kind of passive aggressive. A little bit. <laughs> With food. <laughs> It's you. You have a little passive aggressive like, food. He there. doesn't like sugar. I'm going to specifically talk about sugar. I had somebody the other day say, "I'm sorry, I can't partake of that candy because I am on a sugar diet." Yeah, and then I just started laughing, like really. And then I ate it in a very kind of sultry, kind of sensuous way. That's and, rude. And he actually you savor- creepy. Yeah. Yeah. he was kind of grossed out, and he walked away. Yeah, mm-hmm. weird. It's also kind of rude. You're like in your face, sugar. Mm-hmm. When he's purposely trying to better himself yeah. without sugar, I was trying to strengthen his character. You could be a friend, his, his will, and just abstain until you're, you know, away from him, and then eat your sugar like you normally do. Yeah, but I, I, I my body was saying I needed sugar right then. All right, well, and I, his own. well, and I had to, I had like ten pieces. I had to get going. I had to get through them. Yeah, manageable is about five, so you got to yeah. eat five in a row right there. I was going to give him some, but he didn't want any. Right. So I just ate his. Okay. Well, you don't want him to go to waste. No. By the way, candy of choice, bit of honey lately. Not bad. Really? I love the bit O honey. What about big hunk? Mm-hmm. Yes, I it, am. It's got like some nougat in there. Oh. I love I love a big hunk followed immediately by a trip to the dentist. Yeah. An emergency trip. I only eat a big hunk in the in the lobby of my dentist's office. Because just in case. What about a Charleston chew? Haven't had any of those since the what the seventies. Those those are good. I like those. Stephen Stephen Wright says he'll eat an entire case of Oreos because his dental hygienist is attractive. Really? What about sugar daddies? I like to pay my own way. Okay, well it's candy, but I don't want anyone else paying my bills. Right. You can't go wrong. With a good old Reese's peanut butter cup. Uh, but you have to get the right one. Not the regular size. Not the little... Little cuplets. No, you got to get the little cups. Really? The little cups. Not the ones, like not the tiny ones that come without the wrapper. You got to get the mini ones. Okay. Now why? It's the perfect proportion of chocolate to peanut butter. Hmm. Somebody's thought they about this. They cracked it. They cracked okay. it. All right. Well, we'll bring all that up with Dr. Ron. Ask him about Chick-O-Stick. Chick-O-Stick? Oh, that sounds yeah. wonderful. It's a stick-like candy like, confection that tastes like chicken. Oh, it's candy? Yeah. Ooh, why would you want candy that tastes I've like chicken? I've never understood that, that candy, but it's always there on the candy aisle. Chick-O-Stick. Like Chick-O-Stick. It's at the bottom. It's one of those lesser-known, lesser-appreciated candies. Lesser-purchased? Yeah, yeah. You Chick-O-Stick. You Chick-O-Stick. Your mom's Chick-O-Stick. <laughs> what? Uh, okay, so we'll get to all of that fun with Dr. Ron Hager, our health evangelist. Plus, we're going to talk about um, what you do when a moose chases you on a golf course. Uh, just do a not little, play dead. Don't play dead. Now, right. what we do now with just bears— play, Just play through. Yeah. Just yell four and start running. Um, I've had a moose on the loose near me, and it's terrifying. With its huge rack of antlers, and it just came crashing through the trees. Trees were exploding. It was scary. Moose on the Loose, I think that's the sequel to Nuns on the Run. Yeah. It's a really good movie. So we'll talk about how you, what you do when 
you're being chased on the golf course by a moose. And again, don't play dead. That's probably not – that's old school. Now you fight like a man. <laughs> you do what you can. But whatever you do, keep moving. Uh, we'll get to that. Plus also three people charged uh, in a burglary of a car wash caught with about 100 pounds of quarters. Ooh. Can you imagine – How do you get a quick getaway with that many quarters? Well, and how do you keep your pants up with 100 pounds of quarters? They're already sagging anyway. In your jeans, right? It ain't pretty, folks. We'll get to all that fun. Um, plus, uh, of course, BYU Sports Nation will be straight ahead, and we'll talk about what uh, is going to be on their show today. And a hero story, all that ahead. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the country? The majority of Americans are concerned that the U.S. could become involved in a major war at some point in the next four years, a grim new NBC News survey a poll that uh, has found that overwhelming 76% answered that they are worried about impending war, up from 66% who said they were fearful of a major conflict when the same question was asked in February. Americans believe a number of different nations could pose the greatest immediate threat, although North Korea emerged as the most probable option at 41%. Americans also fear conflict with the Islamic State at 28% and Russia at 18%. Hmm. So we're going to war. Wow. At least that's what people think. Uh, war doesn't seem like it's not a good time for war for yeah, us. I, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. Let's not organize. Maybe wars. maybe next spring. That'll be maybe. Let's see. Let's okay. see how the winter goes. OK. <laughs> Man. <laughs> it seemed like a, a, a grim topic for a, a totally. polling data there. And it came from NBC News and SurveyMonkey. So. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Subprime auto loans are on the rise, which the same easy loans and quick defaults that marked America's mortgage market before the financial crisis, Bloomberg reports. Hmm. Well, no one suggests this will lead to another economic collapse, primarily because auto, auto subprime remains much smaller than mortgage subprime. The financial risks are being spread out in similar manner. Moreover, it shows consumer and bankers haven't learned from past mistakes. So wow. the habits that tanked our Did economy in 2008 are being repeated, but with cars this time. <sighs> you guys. 2009, 2.5 billion new subprime auto bonds were sold. 2013, U.S. car sales began to soar. 2016, 26 billion new subprime auto bonds were sold. So tw- 2009, it was 2.5 billion new subprime auto, right? Yeah. 2016, it's 26 billion. So 2.5 billion in, in 2009, Man. 26 billion last year. And these are subprime auto loans, meaning not. there's no confidence that people are going to pay right. back the loan. Yeah, we got a problem here, Bueller. So it says the partnership between Fiat, Chrysler, and Santler Bank has made them kings of the subprime auto market, has gotten Santler into some legal problems. Bloomberg went through court documents and findings to find that Santler vetted income of borrowers fewer than once for every 10 loans. So look, vetting their income, their ability to pay back the loan, they only looked into it one out of every ten oh boy. applicants for a loan, which were uh, packaged into $1 billion bonds. It took all of these okay. questionable loans and, and... threw them down the road. Yeah, just the same thing they did Why with not? the home mortgages. Right. It says it's also easy for, easy for dealers to find ways to approve low-income borrowers for auto loans that aren't too much for them. On top of that, or they are too much for them. They can't pay these back. On top of that, Wall Street rewards these risky activities. So it's all the same stuff again. Plus, we have student loans out there that people can't loans. pay. Holy yeah. cow. O.J. Simpson will back in the courtroom this week for a televised court ruling that will decide his freedom. This time, Simpson is up for parole for the armed robbery and kidnapping case that kept him locked up in Nevada since 2008. The hearing will be broadcast live 
1 p.m. Eastern on Thursday, oh, ESPN's going to go wall-to-wall. All the news coverage is going to go wall-to-wall. Are you serious? Come on. Well, it's not like the White House is going to broadcast anything live. That's true. They're all not that, doing they're All not that's going to their... be, you, you'll hear the audio after yeah. the, after the uh, what the uh, press conference it's is over ratings. there. So, uh, it used to be, remember, that was the big thing. It's all about ratings. Is that Trump was, the ratings in the afternoon yeah. are huge. We're beating now all the soap Now they're ruining operas. the ratings. If the parole board, board assents, uh, Simpson would be free on October 1st, and he'd either move in with his friend in Florida or with his sister in Sacramento. Both the AP and Sports Illustrated report the Simpson stands a decent chance of getting out. Apparently the guards at the prison don't call him the juice. <laughs> they call him Norberg. Norberg. Who's his character from the Naked Gun movies. Oh, oh Nordberg. <laughs> Nordberg. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, maybe they'll let him out so that he can make another one. He also has a job in prison. What? He keeps all the gym equipment clean. Oh, he's yeah. He's a gym rat. He's the gym guy. He, cleans the, yeah. he cleans the squat racks if Are they you? have those. Yeah, it's, it's a gym equipment. I don't know if you haven't been in a I gym I haven't been in a gym ever. Finally, um, we're in the middle of the sweaty season. Uh, yeah. As this says. We don't want to be within 20 feet of a, as it says, a New Yorker right now because it's a New York-related story. Um, I guess they might be sneaky. Well, New Yorkers don't sweat more than anyone else. Yeah, so really humid, really, really sweaty. Well, you'd think you'd like, be like more like Louisiana. Like, yeah. That's hot. So hmm. as The Guardian reports, the Kunkin body system launched last Thursday. Kunkin. C-U-N-K-U-N. Or K-U-N-K-U-N. So Kunkin. Kunkin? Kunkin? Consists this of a, like Kofifi? No. It okay. consists of a discrete detector that connects to your phone uh-huh. through an app yeah. and alerts you when your personal odor emissions have become nauseous. Uh, uh, uh. Focus, Can't we just use our nose for that? It, for, it focuses on four body areas. Are you ready? Oh, boy. Armpits, Ugh. your feet, Ugh. your head, uh-huh. and oddly, just behind your ear. <coughs> Ooh, Jeff, you okay? Really? Yeah. So you just like put it back there and then press a test button, and then your phone will tell you if you stink. You smell delicious. Have you, ever, you, have you ever considered how the backs of your ears smell? No. Apparently, they're going to let you know. Boy, are we that bored? They the the people that make the body the kun kun body system claim to detect sweaty link or sweaty stink, so called middle fat odors. And what the Japanese call uh, karushu or something. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. roughly might be described as old people smell. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> See, and sadly, there's a – yeah, sadly, there's a gap in the technology between those apparently that need to use it and those that actually use technology. The, the, the writer here asks, what happens if you get a stinky notification and you're heading into a job interview? What do you do? Axe body spray. Is it, you just have one of those on hand? I, I carry a can of Do my as back the teenagers pocket. do. That's right. It's unclear whether this device will be available to improve the stink of the Amer- American society. Yeah. Does it do feet? Um, Did it say feet? It's made by, no, not feet. It needs to do feet for heaven's Ar- sake. Well, no, armpits, feet, okay. head, and just behind your ear. Okay. It's made by the people who, uh, Conica Minolta is the parent company oh, really? that okay. makes this. So. Wow. It'll Again, re- retail something you didn't even know you needed, but you ab- need it. About $265 a piece. Yeah. And it'll tell you if you have smelly ears, apparently. <laughs> wow. Unbelievable. Uh, luckily, as we go to break, we have a, one of our great sponsors on the show. Um, it's an insurance company that helps if you have too many odors in your home, you can actually insure against it. We here at Allstink believe in the importance of protecting your most valuable asset, your family. 
And that means protecting your most valuable sense, your sense of smell. That's why Allstink offers offensive comprehensive insurance. Now, what exactly does offensive comprehensive insurance cover? Let's say Aunt Edna stops by for a visit and removes her shoes. Believe it or not, the lingering bouquet from Aunt Edna's funky feet is covered. Or how about when it's April Fool's Day and your old college roommate sneaks in and hides an open can of tuna fish in your vent that you don't find for two weeks? That fishy foulness is covered. And if you've always been a stinky person yourself, go ahead and purchase our package anyway. Because Offensive Comprehensive also covers pre-existing conditions. If you're still unsure as to what this insurance covers, just remember, if it's offensive, we cover it. All Stinks Offensive Comprehensive Insurance. For when life stinks. I'm ready for a miracle. Who better to help us bring that miracle in than the health evangelist? Uh, I was going to call you Pastor Ron. But um, Dr. Ron Hager is an associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences here at BYU. And he used to be called the death um, preventor. Yeah, preventor, yeah. Yeah. And then we just thought, let's just maybe call him the health evangelist, because you don't necessarily decide who lives and who dies. No, no, I don't. At least I, I yeah, you I, didn't. I, I try. I mean, sometimes in my mind, I'm, you, you I'm think, kind of playing that out, but I, but it never really yeah. happens. It doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't always play out that way. <laughs> right. So, uh, Ron, we we gave Ron a little curveball where we we sent him an article um, that was in the Huffington Post. It was about some research being done about uh, obesity but really the question is is fat but fit a big fat myth so if you are overweight but you're in great physical shape you're fit enough to you know run a 5k you're healthy whatever uh is it is you know does that eliminate your lack of or your being overweight that's that's a great question and it's been argued for a long time now uh, we have to approach this subject honestly with a little bit of uh I guess discretion, a little bit of maybe even some caution. You know, right. th- this is a very personal thing. This is even difficult when I talk about it in my class. You know, because we spend time talking about uh, you know the health risks associated with overweight and obesity. And there's some person like the person who wrote this editorial based on the, this research came out of uh, out of Britain, out of the UK. Um, it was a, a a prospective cohort study. So it looked at a large group of people. I think it was like over 3 million people wow. or something like that. Followed them, you know, for many years and looked at their risk of uh, developing diabetes or having a heart attack or dying from cardiovascular disease or having a stroke. And what they found is that as, you know, as, as time went on, uh, people who were overweight or obese, and, and it was based on Body mass index or mm-hmm. BMI, which is not even actually a measure. No, I hate that of, thing. Of 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 fatness or percent fatness, uh, it's just a essentially it's a ratio of height to weight, and 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 and, and at an individual level, it 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 may or may not be very accurate. Right. You know, a person, for example, could be a bodybuilder. You know, very muscular and very lean, and and have actually an, a BMI that would put them in the obese category, but they're obviously not obese. I mean, right. they're lean, they're right. ripped, you know. So so at an individual level, you know, it may not be accurate. It may not apply. But at a population level, you know, where, you know, the bodybuilder is kind of the rare exception, mm-hmm. 
uh, you know, in a population, uh, it, it, it works pretty it's well. It's a metric, yeah. Yeah, it actually works pretty well. So in this, in this research, uh, they used BMI, and, and they found that over time, uh, people who were overweight or obese had higher risk of disease. Now, the, the person that wrote this little editorial, uh, it was a, an article published in what's called the UK Media. Uh, they they kind of discuss how upset they are because, uh, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, they say that research or at least the way that's pre- that it's presented can be very misleading. So they were kind of venting uh, a little bit. And I want to just read this quote from the author of this editorial uh, she says, before I get into the study itself, I feel pulled to point out the but in the title. So the title was, is fat uh, but fit a big myth? So she says, I, I feel pulled to the point to, to point out the but in the article. Why fat but fit? As it, it is as if fat in and of itself is a bad thing. But if you're fit, then, it, that, then that at least does something to ameliorate the horror <laughs> of the fatness. What about fat and fit? Uh, that would be a less loaded title, don't you think? Huh. Um, now, and, and she's, you know, she's just kind of arguing, you know, semantics here. She's just saying, you know, why not use and instead, you know, fat and fit instead of fat but fit. Uh, and and I, I just want to point that, I just want to talk about that for a second. Uh, and again, with, with sensitivity. Now, you know, and the reason you have to be sensitive in this is is because when a person is overweight or obese, no matter what standard you want to use, uh, it, it's it's something that can be seen, right? It's mm-hmm. if a person has high blood pressure, high cholesterol, you know, nobody knows. Yeah, you don't you don't you don't walk around the street, you know, and you can't see mm-hmm. a lot of high blood pressure, you know, or a lot of high cholesterol, or even a lot of diabetes, right. for that matter. Uh, but but. The, the, but being overweight or obese is is pretty hard to disguise. And you could you know, discrim you could be discriminated against. Sure, yeah. sure. And the, and the author argues for that too. But but let's just think about this: is, is fat but fit? Okay, so the the but there is indicating that uh, you know it, it, you know you can offset you know the fatness. As she says, the horror <laughs> of the fatness uh, with with fitness. Yeah, and. You know, and there is some truth to that, but you have to be careful that you're not just looking for ways to justify, mm-hmm. you know, or to rationalize. Right. And, and I think that's a big key here. Because there's um, also – there's body types. There's, sure. And we don't want to say that everybody in on earth that's healthy, you know, looks like a swimsuit model. No, certainly not. There, are, I mean, there are lean people who are extremely unhealthy and prone to disease. Right. There are overweight people, obese people who uh, are – you know, relatively speaking, are very healthy, and and their risk of disease is actually decreased. Right. Uh, but but the point, the, I guess, the point I want to make is, um, fat being overweight. I mean, okay, there's there's uh, there, there are what are called health related components of fitness. Mm-hmm. Things like you know cardiovascular endurance, uh, things like uh, muscular strength. Uh, body composition is actually a health-related component of fitness. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody has to, like you said, be the same percent body fat. Uh, you know, you have to figure out what's going to work best for you. And I say this repeatedly every time I come on the show just about that, that you know, your health is a personal thing. Uh, and certainly you don't want to judge anybody. Right. You know, I, I mean, there are, there are really, you know, bad people who are lean. There are really good people who are overweight. Uh, 
you know, so it, it, you know, there is discrimination that is known, and the author brings that point out. You know, she says there's 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 problems with this research. One is it's correlational research, and a lot of epidemiological research is. But one of the strengths of correlational research in epidemiology is that you're looking at massive amounts of people, oftentimes over decades. Yeah. Okay. Now, certainly you can't control for everything. And she she makes that point too. She says that, you know, did they control for fitness? Did they control for weight discrimination? Because, you know, maybe, so, so what this means is that, you know, maybe if a person's overweight, they're being discriminated against, and that's what's causing the ill health outcomes, oh. not the actual overweight. Interesting. Yeah. And so you do have to control for those things. But one of the things that she also says that kind of throws me for a loop is she says, given that weight loss through dieting is a zero-sum game, and that's true, more people are dieting now than ever before in history, right? and yet obesity rates are going up. Uh, and she says, given that there's no objective scientific proof that excess weight causes ill health, what next? So she says there's no objective yeah, that, scientific proof. Uh, hello? It seems yeah, counter yeah. to that. Yeah. So so I, I, let me just go back real quick to this idea of, you know, the word but. Um, you know, I, I brought in a, a little uh, what's called a stereograph. This comes from a, an article by Ralph Paffenbarger. He's an epidemiologist. He looked a lot of, at, at fitness. Mm-hmm. And, and he found, for example, that people who are physically active, heavy smokers actually have less risk of, of cardiovascular disease than an inactive non-smoker. Really? Okay. So, 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 so you're doing something unhealthy, smoking, but being active yeah. makes it healthier. Yeah. So, so makes one, you healthier. Right, right. So one of the principles or standards, I guess you might say, of epidemiology is, is something called independence, where you look at, you, you try and discover the independent effect of some variable of interest on some outcome like like cardiovascular disease. Mm-hmm. And the way you help establish that independence, I mean, we know smoking's bad, right? So right. we say, you know, hey, smoking's unhealthy. But but making the argument that, that, look, it's okay if I smoke as long as I'm active, right? That doesn't make sense. Right. That's like saying it's okay if I'm obese as long as I'm, you know, trying to be active. fit at yeah. the same time. Yes, it might be better than being obese and unfit, but you should still try and achieve a healthy weight. Yeah, it's apple. Yeah. It's not, they're not moral equivalents. It's not the same. Right. Right. Hmm. So, but but a lot of times people try and, you know, cancel one thing out with another thing. Right, right. You know, you say, well, look, I, uh, you know, I had a smoothie for breakfast so I can, you know, have a, a cheeseburger milkshake and fries for lunch. Right. Uh, you know, as if, you know, it's okay, you know, because mm-hmm. you know, I did one thing good, now I can do one thing bad. And then as the author of this little article points out, it's a zero-sum game. You know, right. I, I'm no better, I'm no worse, I'm just fine. Interesting. And, that, and that's not really how it works. That's not how it works, <laughs> no, is it? No, Because, too, I mean, your weight is over time. Weight is, I mean, I'm assuming being overweight, A, does have negative ramifications Yeah. that she's claiming it doesn't, but it does, right? Well, yeah, we and, pay for it. And back to the control thing, she says, well, what about, you know, did you control for things like diabetes? You know, so in an overweight population over time, are they more at risk of a cardiovascular event, uh, you know, because of because they're diabetic? Uh, so if you take, if you control for, if you take diabetes out, then you say, 
you know, well, maybe they're not at any more or less risk than a lean, hmm. than a lean person. But the fact of the matter is, Matt, that that, that obesity uh, is is a is a strong uh, uh, indicator of risk of becoming diabetic, right? And, and other things as well. So yes, you could control for those things, uh, but but at the same time, uh, obesity has been linked to increased risk of diabetes strongly. So where she says, you know, there's no credible or objective evidence. I mean, I, I just, I went online, looked at the Harvard School of Public Health website. They, they put out a lot of really great stuff. Uh, anybody can go there and look it up. And they had a little, just kind of a review on the, the health risks associated with, obe- with, with, with obesity. They, they talk about it as it, it's, it's related to diabetes, cardiovascular disease, even some cancers, uh, with, with depression and quality of life, with uh, reproductive function, uh, with lung function and respiratory disease, mm. uh, even oh, even memory and cognitive function has been linked to that now, especially through Alzheimer's uh, disease, musculoskeletal disorders. You know, like you know, your back hurts, your knees, your yeah. hips hurt. Well, you know, if you're carrying around forty or fifty extra pounds, you can expect you know that that's going to have a problem, um, and even overall mortality. So, uh, obese people do not live as long. Mm. Uh, so, so in this in this little three page kind of a thing that they put out, just sort of a review. It's not just what they think. It's backed up by 50 <laughs> scientific peer-reviewed right. publications. Yeah. You know, and, and, and again, you know, epidemiology and, 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 and cross-sectional research, you know, does not imply cause and effect relationships. Um, but when you're looking at massive amounts of people in a population following them sometimes uh, for multiple decades, I mean, some of these studies go on for 20, 30, 40 years mm-hmm. where they're following the same group of people. I mean, those are, you know, you, you can generate some pretty strong arguments, even though you may not, you know, sort of uh, officially be able to say cause and effect, um, you know, because in, in statistics, that kind of means a certain thing. Uh, but you can certainly, you know, use common sense yeah. and say, wow, you know, there's something going on here. Something's happening. Yeah. Okay, let's take a break. Um, but going away, I guess what we know is you should be in as great a fitness shape as you can be. Because sure. that'll help no matter what you've got going on, it sounds like. Sure. And you want to lower your weight. If you need to, certainly. Yeah if, yeah. yeah, if you're in that category. Interesting. We'll take a break. More with the health evangelist, Dr. Ron Hager, up next. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the healthiest you can be. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In studio with us is uh, Dr. Ron Hager. He's our health evangelist. Today he's helping us better understand uh, or maybe blow up a little bit the myth of fit but fat. You can be, I guess. I mean, it it helps you to be fit no matter what your condition. But um, in the end, it would be better to probably just be fit and, I guess, as 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 what? What would be the ideal weight for us? Well, you know, one of the things that is a problem, Matt, is that so many, um, I, I, I mean, I actually think researchers, but even, you know, people in the general population, so many people are looking for the one thing. Yeah. The magic bullet. Yeah. You know, as if, as if you know, weight is the the culprit in, in, you know, everything we deal with or is, or as if diet is the culprit in everything we deal with, and that's that's not the world we live no. in. It's a combination of things. Uh, you know, you, you you could have a strong belief that you know uh, smoking is 
uh, a, a terrible thing, and it is. I mean, it uh, it's responsible uh, for more deaths worldwide than any single other cause. But you can't just say, therefore, if we got rid of all smoking, the world would be a perfect place. Right. Because that's just not We how, still have Cheetos. Sure. Sure, we do. And, you know, a, a person could have cancer. Would they be better off being fit with cancer or unfit with cancer? Right. Sure. You know, I mean, that, that's, that's easy to see. So, the, so for me, you look at uh, what we've termed, and I've mentioned this, we've talked about this before many times, uh, kind of the prudent lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Now, it is a combination of things. So, you know, if a person who, let, let's say they're obese by whatever standard, let's say BMI standards, so it's a, a, a BMI of 30 or more would be considered obese, a score of 30 on a BMI, uh, you know, they might say, uh, you know, I accept, you know, who I am as far as my BMI goes. Uh, I, I have no desire to change it. But I'll go ahead and work on the other things. Mm-hmm. You know that would be like a smoker to me. Now I'm not. I'm not saying they're the same thing. Don't get me wrong. Like yeah. I said, you got to be very sensitive when you talk right. about these things. But that would be like a smoker saying, "I've tried and I've failed, and I've tried and I've failed, and I can't quit smoking." I, so I accept that I am a smoker, but I'm going to try and eat right, and I'm going to try and. Uh, you know, be fit and manage my stress. I mean, is that is that a good way to be? Sure, but I would also say, yeah, but don't give up on quitting smoking. Yeah, keep trying. Keep, keep trying. And we live in a in a world today where kind of failure is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you fail at something that somehow it's a reflection on you as a person, you know, and that's just not true. You know, our, our worth is inherent. And, and, and that's why I say you got to be careful not to judge. You know, uh, you know, do you judge a smoker? Do you see a person smoking and say, wow, what a disgusting person? Right. Or do you say, you know, that's a terrible habit they have. Mm-hmm. I feel for them. Yeah. You know, that's a little different perspective. You know, and this, this author of this little editorial kind of went into the – she actually went into great length about, you know, the whole idea of weight discrimination. People who are overweight or obese, they make less money. They, uh, they have, uh, you know, lesser, I guess what you might call important jobs. They have lower – uh, acceptance in society, you know, and she says, well, that's all, you know, a type of weight discrimination. You know, maybe, you know, there's probably some truth to that, but, but, uh, but look, it, it's a problem, you know, right. I mean, it's, it, 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 it costs our healthcare system billions of dollars annually. Uh, you know, I, I, and I'm not trying to be rude, but let me just give you an example. I was on a flight one, one time and I, I was sitting down before the flight took off, and there was an open seat next to me. It was just a, you know, there were two seats. Uh, I was against the window, and a person comes on and says, oh, I'm sitting right here next to you. And this person probably weighed 400 pounds. Mm. And, and I did not look at them and say, oh, my gosh, you know. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, you know, what a terrible person. They don't take care of them. No, I don't. I, I, I try very hard not to do that. But, but I'm not going to lie. Matt, when that person sat down in their seat and half of mine, it was a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, and and but look, I got through the flight. We actually had a very pleasant conversation. Uh, I I got to know the person better. They got to know me better. We left as friends. It was all good. But but I'm not going to say that it that it didn't affect me. That's right. Well, and they know that. Sure. They know they're leaning on you or hanging on your. I mean, and, that's, and I, then there's the psychological side of this and, and yeah, and the I, mental health. And side. I actually feel for them when it comes to that. Yeah. So. Uh, you know, because people don't wake up, you know, one day and say, "Look, I, I've, I've, you know, I, I can't wait to be overweight or obese." Right. Uh, you know, it, it's a, it's a problem. It's a struggle. 
But everybody deserves respect. Everybody deserves to feel like they're valued and that they have worth as a person and as a contributing member of society. So, you know, does discrimination exist? Sure. Mm-hmm. And, and not just with weight, with all kinds of things. Everything. Sure. Well, I mean, even eating at McDonald's, you can be as fit as you want. But if I tell certain relatives of mine that I ate at McDonald's, they look at me like I'm smoking illegal drugs. Right. And so it, so I guess that's kind of the natural thing in us. One thing that you, that you brought up, um, part of health, it seems like to me, I really ought to be focused on the th- living the healthy life that me and my body may need. If I already yeah. know that we have uh, you know, a possibility of diabetes in my life or in my gene pool, sure. I probably need to pay s- strict attention to my diet, don't you think? Like, no, and, and make that part of my health well, code yeah, sure. and, and that your, others and, may not and, feel. And your weight. Uh-huh, exactly. And your fitness. Exactly. You know, what are you doing Exercise. to stay fit? And it's all, it's all a package. It's all part of a, what, I, what I've termed a prudent lifestyle, and it includes a lot of things. It mm. includes elements of diet. It includes elements of managing your stress. Are you getting enough sleep? You know, are you sleeping well? How are your relationships? Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a big deal. And there is no one size fits all. You know, if every if, if there were no overweight or obese people in the world, would all our problems go away? No. Absolutely not. Right. No, not at all. And it, it's, it actually seems like fitness is, and not like I'm not believe me, I'm not thinking rock hard, solid, ripped body fitness. I'm just thinking healthy, fit person that can climb, you know, a bunch of stairs going to the opera and be able to go there without dying on the way. But if you could be fit enough, it's actually a great barometer for your health to know when something else is going wrong. Once you are fit, you do start to see other parts of your body that maybe aren't quite working right because you're you're more attuned. Yeah. And, you know, I don't have a problem with anybody, you know, trying to figure out how to accept themselves for who they are. And I think we should also be very accepting of other people too, knowing that we're not perfect and nobody else is either. You know, I I think that would go a long way to making the world a better place, you know, in and of itself. But, but, you know, uh, your health is a dynamic thing. It's not a static thing. A lot of people treat it as a static thing. They say, well, look, I take my vitamins every morning. I'm good to go. Right. it, it, it doesn't work like that. It's something you constantly have to be working on. It's a lifestyle. Uh, it, you know, it, it, it's no different than, say, learning. You know, nobody ever stops learning. I mean, they might say they do, but, mm-hmm. you know, because maybe they're sick of it or whatever. They might not officially be in school or working on a degree or something like that. But everybody's always learning. You know, as long as you're living, as long as you're breathing, you know, you're, you're, learning. you're learning some things. Right. And, and that's kind of how I view, you know, your health. Your health is about your lifestyle. Uh, and and it and it's a lifetime kind of a thing, and and if a person struggles to lose weight or struggles to stop smoking or struggles to eat healthy or struggles to exercise, I say don't give up, you know. Just and, try and, it again tomorrow. And, and, and don't let your failures define you. Yeah. Uh, I mean that's why we're here. We're you know you you can you can fail to learn and you can learn to fail. Right. Right. Yeah. Mm. Dr. Ron Hager's his name. He is the health evangelist here on the Matt Townsend Show. We appreciate him. He'll be back every other week to guide us to a healthier way of living and a healthier life. We'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, we'll visit our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, it's that time to go find out what's coming up on BYU Sports Nation. And uh, by the way, only about 10, nine and a half, uh, 10, 10 minutes away or so. Let's shoot it down to our buddies, uh, Spencer and Jerem today. Hello, gentlemen. Hi, Matt. How are you? The sporting, you know us. Hey, I used to have a friend, by the way, uh, once a long time ago. Yeah, and his mother would go out to the back porch whenever we were out playing, and the mother was like an opera singer, and she would sing his name. Tommy, come home. <laughs> and we would all look at him like, you are kidding me. Is your mom singing your name? And then that's he'd just funny. pick up his bat and his ball, and he would leave. Wait, that's not a joke. That is a true story. He's actually no longer with us. Wow. He got beat up on the ballpark (laughs) no but his mom really did do that and uh it worked because if you know he did he wanted her to stop singing and she promised she'd keep singing until he got home that is actually kind of ingenious it's smart isn't it but it's also mortifying if you were that kid it's just it totally it's just a little parenting tip i'm giving you guys because you're both pretty good singers it's tough to be an opera singer and then sing with a group of normal people yeah it is or sing super loud because everyone hears you. Mm-hmm. You stick out, but that's kind of what you want. You have the vibrato that stands out. Yeah. Yeah. I hate that. My vibrato totally stands out. Tough. Hey, um, speaking of vibrato standing out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going through all these different songs or different things that I would sing to Jax. <laughs> Jax Bear, come inside or you get no treat. Wow. Pavarotti. Yes, and I call him Jack Bear because he's my Jack Bear. Do you? That's cute. Okay. Yeah, you know what? Try it once first. Just try it on, like when he's got some of his friends maybe in the backyard. Sing him home and then talk about it when his friends leave and see how he how so it went. so much easier just to say, get in here or you don't right. get a treat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> get in here now, please! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to throw the please at the end yeah, to make it please, sound. You can say whatever yeah. you want. It's like you're a nice person. <laughs> Hey, um, up, what do you guys think of Richard Sherman's quote about NFL players needing maybe to be willing to strike for Not better salaries? Not going to happen. I mean, it is pretty amazing how much more money the NBA seems to make. It's pretty wild, right? Like the NFL, you would think that the guaranteed money in the NFL would be the highest of any sport because right. of how reckless they're asked to be with their bodies. Yeah. Yet, it's not. Like you could be Otto Porter Jr., for the Washington Wizards and make more than Tom Brady. Wow. You can be Matthew Della Vadova, Jerem, and what? make $10 million a year. What? True. One of the worst contracts. Hey, I what? just read that. One of the worst contracts uh, at point guard or shooting guard, whatever he is. Um, yeah, so that doesn't seem fair, especially when the NFL is making so much money. Who decides what is fair, though? I think Who sets that? Is it society no, that sets the supply and demand for that? Yeah, no. Well, I mean, I guess that's what Sherman's saying is if we it's all strike— contracts mostly, I think. If everyone would just strike, then, then the NFL would have to give more. I blame Roger Goodell. You know what? When in doubt, <laughs> blame because Roger Goodell. he gets Goodell. blamed for everything else. It's so true. Oh, Obama and Roger. That's right. Now, now it'll be at Trump. At some point, yeah. I will start to feel bad for Roger Goodell, but he kind of can't get out of his own way. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of like all leadership today. A lot of them are just stepping on their own toes. You know? Sad. So, so sad. <laughs> now, you guys have this show called BYU Sports Nation. That we do. It's a program. It's a program, and it's been going on for years. It's, it's into its millionth episode. 
ish. Close. So uh, what's on today's? What's on the docket for today? Hey, well, first of all, we get paid millions of pennies to do this show. Yes, you do. Okay. And they actually pay it in pennies. <laughs> really annoying, but we're happy to get paid at all. <laughs> That's great. So in a way, we are millionaires, right? You are. You're penny heirs. <laughs> penny heirs. Mm-hmm. Today, we are going the game show route, Matt. Of course. It's time. Yes. It's been way too long. Yes. Since we channeled our inner game show hosts and played meet that running back on BYU Sports Nation. Fun. Who in the world is going to replace Jamal Williams? Why not a simple biography and put guys behind five different doors to introduce to all of BYU Sports Nation who the candidates are? How to cool. Step up. Yeah. Are you going to play this with every position? No. Well, maybe you Probably should. Probably with wide receiver. Okay, yeah, yeah. R- running back and wide receiver seem to be the biggest question yeah. marks. Those are good. That's a good game. The skill positions always create for an interesting conversation. Can, can anybody steal a turn? Ooh, maybe we need to bring that into the mix. Yeah. Bonus round. Bonus round. Can I call a friend? I think I'd try it. Is that your final answer? <laughs> Okay, that's good. That's going to be on the show. That's a yes. that's a great hit. What well, else? Why not talk about running backs as one of the all-time greats? Curtis Brown. He, oh, uh, I love Curtis. Until Harvey Unga took it, and then Joel yeah. Williams. But we will uh, talk to Curtis Brown. Plus, Ask him about his kids, by the way. His, okay. I think, triplets? Quadruplets, maybe? Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Curtis Brown. Ask him. He's a friend of mine. Like, quad, like the running back? I can't remember if it was here. quads or triplets, but he has he had three or four. Like the running back from 2006? Yeah. Stud. Oh, that's crazy. Amazing. Check it out. T- how does he have time for us? That's I, well, that's weird. It's probably because he needs a break. <laughs> he needs a break. Plus, between the lines has the not top 10 moments of the past sports year in BYU sportsdom. Ooh. With reactions from athletes and other people. You Okay. Again. Can't wait. It's going to be fun. It's another great show. Plus, triplets. Uh, Curtis Brown, I promise. Trust me on that one. Just ask him. I can't remember if it's triplets. I'm looking right now or quadruplets, but uh, it's a lot. And he's a great dad and with a wonderful family, wonderful wife. So ask him about that. Super cool. Well, you're going to check it out four and a half minutes away. BYU Sports Nation. You will not want to miss it, folks. You won't want to miss it. But before we let you go, we're going to give you a little more advice. If you happen to be on the golf course and a moose starts to chase you down, let us let us uh, give you some advice here. Uh, as if it's not already hard enough to get a hole-in-one, being chased by a moose for fun added to the challenge. That's the experience of one Swedish man that he, uh, as he was trying to play the game on a Swedish course. While playing the golf game, it quickly turned into a run, run, run from that moose is after me kind of game. The video of the incident begins with a standoff between the man and the moose, but quickly devolves into a fast and furious style chase. First around a tree, then across the course. Luckily, the moose quickly loses its interest and decides to investigate some nearby trees instead. However, that's not to say the moose wasn't doing an important job. One of the biggest complaints about the gol- about golf is how slow the game plays. But how much faster would the game be if a moose was chasing you the entire way? Wouldn't that be great? You have to get up, address your ball, whack! Get in your cart, hurry, and drive away. I spent many, many hours as a child playing moose, uh, run, 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 that there's a moose after me. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Did you? Did you ever play it on the golf course? No, no, no. Um, we didn't have the money for that. So okay. is that the, the closest thing was at the park. Well, 
try that. And then near the traps, you could have some gators that come out. Okay. And then maybe uh, you could have a like a beaver or a, what is it like a badger or something that lives in the hole, and so you've got to get your ball out of the out of the hole after you've putted it in without we losing need, a digit. We don't need no stinking badgers. <laughs> I think it'd pick the game up a lot. I think we'd have a lot of viewers. Hey, uh, as you know, we always like to end the show with a hero story, and today's hero story is an ex-convict that misses a job interview to save a motorist's life. Listen to this. And then the community rallies behind him. Aaron Tucker was on his way to a job interview in Connecticut on Wednesday in hopes of turning his life around after serving nearly two years in prison. The 32-year-old father had uh, hopped on a public transportation bus near a halfway house in Bridgeport, where he's been living since June after serving his sentence for a weapons charge. The bus was traveling through Westport when Tucker saw a serious car accident accident that left a vehicle overturned. Tucker jumped off the bus immediately to help without hesitation, despite the bus driver informing him that he would, he would not be able to get back on. He said, I asked the driver, are you going to help? He said in a recent interview with WABC, the driver said, no, if you get out, I'm going to leave you. He said, uh, Tucker said, I seen a car smoking up and the bus driver was still talking. The car started smoking, so I just ran out. Tucker then, with uh, some employees from a nearby auto repair shop, pulled the injured driver from the wrecked car. The male driver was transported to a local hospital, and his condition is unknown. Someone needed my help, and that's what I did, Tucker said. Now, this is where the story takes a little turn. Uh, He said, if it happened again, I would do it again. But in the end, the community started to gather around him. Facebook posts started going up. A GoFundMe page was started. As of Saturday, the fundraising page had already secured more than $23,000 in donations from hundreds of people. In In addition to monetary donations, people have offered clothes, helping him to prepare for job interviews, as well as uh, driving him where he needed to go. He's overwhelmed. Tucker is by the flood of support from the community. He's going to take that $23,000, put it into uh, an account for his child so that they can go to college someday. But, uh, folks, that is what we call community right there, taking care of each other from the accidents uh, all the way to the people that, that need a little leg up to get through life. Thanks for being here. Thanks for listening to us. We can't do the show without you. Join us again tomorrow, 9 to noon. BYU Sports Nation is up next.